critics are raving. The year of Wonder Woman continues. I am Dr. William Marston, creator of Wonder Woman. On October 13th, meet the women. I think you long for an unconventional life. Who inspired the phenomenon. Berlin, pure of heart, ferocious. Wonder Woman is you, the both of you. And never boring. Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Rated R. Everywhere October 13th. I'm Diablo Frank. With me is Paquita Trotamundos. Today we'll be looking at the recently released docudrama Professor Marsden and the Wonder Woman. We'll also be getting an overview of the life of William Moulton Marston, Sadie Elizabeth Holloway Marston, and Olive Byrne. They all started on the 1920s. William is a professor at Harvard and Elizabeth is there trying to get her PhD and is just kind of like in the classroom and Olive is one of her students. Then they offer her a job because they notice that the professor was getting a little bit interested in her. they both psychologists. So they wanted to, uh, the way I see it, experimenting with this person, Olive. So she started working with them as a teacher assistant. Right out the bat, the wife started saying like, oh yeah, you don't sleep with my husband. And it started creating that drama between the husband, wife, and mistress without saying too much. But then they start showing about how Olive started developing feelings towards Elizabeth, the wife. And at the same time about the husband so trio relationship they started going into having sexual relationships between all three of them and then they started procreating children to each and they decided to all leave together the university find out about the weird relationship between Elizabeth Olive and the professor so he got fired so he started doing like little jobs here and then and Elizabeth is forced to take a secretarial job although with her qualifications I mean she has different master's degrees and she's very educated. At one point in the movie, they make it clear that William believes that Elizabeth is smarter than him and she agrees. So she started taking this uh, job as uh, secretary because that's the only job she can get at that time because being on the 20s and the 30s and she's a woman so she cannot get a job as a professional because that's kind of like a men's world. And they all leave together and they go into creating Wonder Woman and what the movie portrays is that Wonder Woman is a mixture of Elizabeth and Olive that that's how Wonder Woman created. And throughout the movie, they start showing different symbols of Wonder Woman, like Olive always wearing those bracelets. And one of the things that I pointed out to you, Frank, is when they were inventing the lie detector, they wrap around a cable that, I guess, measures your heartbeats. Ha! The lasso of truth. It's gonna look like when they wrap it around you. And then they start seeing different images throughout the movie leading into the creation of Wonder Woman. And one section of it is when they are experimenting with sadomasochism with submission and they have olive dress uh, like a Amazon and then they start playing with a rope symbolizing more like the picture of Wonder Woman as we know her today. The movie goes into the different problems that they have with the family leaving the husband, wife and the mistress in the same house with the same kids and they pointed out that Elizabeth and Olive they're also in love so they all love each other like a big happy 
the family, but then they start creating problems within the neighborhood and the kids being attacked because of not understanding the relationship. Society and, um, rejecting those dynamics. Actually. Yeah, so Elizabeth said, you know, that's it. I'm not going to go through this. So she kicked out all of from the house. And then when William is dying, they decided, yeah, we need you. We love you. Please come back to us. So they came back together. And so Professor William dies. And at the end, Olive and Elizabeth are living until they die. Well, until Olive died first, I think. To the degree that you're familiar with the history of these people behind the creation of Wonder Woman, how accurate would you say it was? Or what do you know about the actual history of people? As soon as we come back from the movie, me and Frank, when we go to the movies, we also discuss afterwards in depth about the movies. And because he told me already that I was going to be part of this podcast. So we did not talk anything about the movie and as to have that burning desire of knowing more or asking questions about Wonder Woman because I am not too familiar with the actual comics. So I know the image. I know Wonder Woman. I know the cartoons, magazine, comics, True Frank. I don't think I've read more than two or three Wonder Woman comics in my life. So the first thing I did when I came home, it was to go to the website and start looking at the story, like how true it was. And right out the bat, the first thing I read was Wikipedia about the movie. And Wikipedia, that says right out the bat, I think it was one of the grandchildren of, I don't know if it was Olive or Elizabeth's kids. She was saying that this movie was all non-true, that Elizabeth and Olive were not lovers, they were just friends. And that the producer or the director of the movie for which it is a woman the granddaughter said that they never at any point interviewed the family to know what really happened or did not happen and she maintained the story of it was more like a sister love more than lovers a sexual relationship I don't know too much of the history and I don't think uh, because I kept reading like different articles about the movie and about the life of these two characters it goes into two different points point number one let's say for sake of argument that they were actually lovers for which it would make a little bit more sense that why Elizabeth being a very very strong intelligent woman and, and very sure of herself and one of the feminists trying to fight into the into the civil acts of the woman liberation is accepting a lover <laughs> um, the the husband's lover to leave with them so I think in my mind it, it makes more sense that they were lovers you know that there was some kind of love and not just kind of be submissive into the husband saying oh you have a lover okay I'm just gonna eat my words and not say anything and just gonna be okay with it because I don't see Elizabeth as I've been reading to it and I know her by knowing her credentials throughout the web that she just accepted I don't think it was more like a sister love let's say that they were actually just friends that they were not sexual desire there was no like sexual love then it just doesn't match is it just doesn't fit the fact that oh yeah you you are a guy you have a lover and just because I am the wife and I'm submissive I have to accept it and welcome this person to our home that doesn't fit with the description of Elizabeth now with all of us different I don't know if it's this in real life she came from a family of true activist mm-hmm. feminist people but she was raised in a convent so maybe she didn't have that feminist flair in her she just kind of went like oh yeah well my family is from feminist like if it's coming within genes that oh yeah I am feminist because of genes it's like for example I grew up in a family with the woman was the strong person you know I, I grew up in a family with my mom sister a brother and myself and where my father was 
pretty much out of the picture. So my mom has to raise three kids on her own, basically. And then you have my sister that, that she's very, very smart. And she's very, very powerful in the sense that, like, she gets what she wants and, and she knows how to play the game. And then you have me that I believe that I'm a very strong woman. And then now you have, in contrast, my brother, the only male of the family, not being as strong and not being as the determined than the woman in the family. So maybe it's a gene thing. Maybe Olive have that flair of feminism because of the genes. But the thing that we know is that she's going to school for a thing psychology. It's not clear in the movie and I haven't read too much in depth about it. Again, from a cursory reading, from doing some research, from what I can tell, she was a student, but she was not one of the professor's students. I don't think she was actually in any of Marsden's classes. Hollywood streamlines the storytelling to put her in a classroom with Professor Mars, but I don't think that was factually correct. Bottom line, do I really believe that that really happened, that they were lovers as the movie portrays? Like I mentioned before, I don't see Elizabeth being that way. I can see Olive accepting that situation because throughout the movie, you see her being the housewife, staying home, cooking, taking care of the kids, doing grocery shopping. To my recollection, at no point do they reveal any profession that she ever takes up. Exactly. So It's alluded to that she started the life after Elizabeth pushes Olive out of the family and she leaves and leaves the children behind by the way no but most she, her, she, uh, or, took, yeah, she took the two kids right and they come to visit at various mm-hmm. points yeah. but they, they mentioned that she started a new life and toward the end of the movie she claims that she's happy in her new life and she doesn't want to go back to the old life but they give you no details as to what that life is or how she's supporting herself outside of the family yeah they go into at uh, the end of the movie she makes the statement that the only way she's gonna come back is if she can get a new stove like a new kitchen and she wants the kids to be taken care of during the weekend or Sunday because that's when she wants to read. So that kind of makes you think that she's the full-blown 1940s housewife. I can see an Elizabeth being lovers is makes sense. Olive, uh, I can go either way. If they're a sisterly love and she's just a submissive wife or it's just like um, actually just lovers of Elizabeth. Okay. Uh, I'll explain where I came to the movie from. It's difficult not to have some understanding of the Marsden situation as a Wonder Woman fan. In particular, I remember when Les Daniels' book, Wonder Woman The Complete History, came out in the year 2000, uh, which is back when I still had my shop. I remember one of my customers like, have you read the book yet? You gotta check this out. You know, it's so crazy. And talking about their presumed polyamorous relationship, or the very least that Marsden had two women with whom he was having a sexual relationship in his household. And then those women all influenced the creation of the Wonder Woman character. I'm a Wonder Woman fan. I don't consider myself some sort of a Wonder Woman scholar. I've got a number of books that discuss Wonder Woman, but I haven't really read her in depth, like the, the actual creation, all the behind the scenes stuff. And in particular, a couple of books, uh, several books in recent years have really blown up the story. Tim Hanley's Wonder Woman Unbound, The Curious History of the World's Most Famous Heroine, Noah Berlatsky's Wonder Woman Bondage and Feminism in the Marston Peter Comics, 1941 through 1948, but most especially Jill Lepore's The Secret History of Wonder Woman. All three of those books came out around 2014. So again, there's a ton of recent information, a lot of new stuff that had come to light, the majority of which was an uh, from my understanding from Jill Lepore's she's a scholar she has uh, impeccable credentials she's an editor for the New Yorker uh, and she had access to a lot of documents from Harvard and was able to make a number of connections that no one had made before so she's definitely the foremost authority on Wonder Woman at this point and and the history of the lives of the people involved in her creation but a lot of that didn't get reflected in the film itself and because I haven't read any of those books entirely I've read parts of some of those books I kind of wanted to go in this movie blank because since I'm not some kind of a major scholar 
color. And because too often with comic book movies, especially because I, I know a fair amount about the histories of the comics, both in the continuity and the behind the scenes stuff, it's very difficult for me to divorce that knowledge from the film that's playing out before my eyes. And often it does prejudice my views and, and I don't allow myself the opportunity to enjoy them unfettered by that knowledge. So I tried to go into this movie as blank as possible. I figured I could always do research on the back end to check the veracity of it, but I wanted to watch the movie for the movie. And I was okay with the presentation of all the facts until they got to the comic books parts, until they actually walk into the publishing offices of what would become DC Comics for uh, Professor Marsden to talk to Max Gaines about producing Wonder Woman comics. And that's when the movie kind of kicked me right out of it because I knew all of that was complete baloney. None of that was remotely factually correct. And so it definitely made me, you know, look back and say, well, how much else did they get right? And so leaving the movie, I expected to read a bunch of stuff on the internet that debunked the movie. I was already aware of Christy Marston is the one you referred to as the granddaughter of the professor. I'm not sure of which mother, though. She's the daughter of Pete Marsden, who in recent years has become notable because he opened the Wonder Woman Museum. He was sort of the face of promoting Wonder Woman history in recent years. He passed away earlier this year, and it seems like, especially in the recent months and leading up to the Wonder Woman movie and this documentary or this docudrama, that she's kind of replaced him as the face of the Marsden family in relation to Wonder Woman. And she's the one who, right before the movie came out, made a point of uh, tweeting and having interviews with a variety of outlets stating that the movie was a pure fiction. But then I went and did the research after the fact, and it turns out a fair amount of the material presented in the movie is, if not 100% factually accurate, is not a completely unheard of presumption of the facts. And that there are basically, you have these two camps. The family tends to favor this platonic ideal of the family dynamic. And then a lot of the researchers and outside observers uh, feel that that is a somewhat naive viewpoint that the family seems to have because there's a lot of information about the family that doesn't make sense if Olive and Elizabeth are not having a romantic relationship with one another. Even Christy Marsden will admit that while she'd say she's 99% certain that nothing happened between the two of them, she herself admits that she can't be absolutely 100% certain of that. She just does not feel that in her relationship with her grandmother, who was Elizabeth Marsden, she is the she, she is the granddaughter of Elizabeth Marsden because she calls her Grams and she refers to Olive as Dots or Dottie and she didn't have the relationship so much with Dottie as she did with her Gram. So often speaks with her and speaks to how open-minded she was and how open she was about the realities of adult relations and she just felt like her Grams would have told her if they she'd been in a relationship with Oliver all those years. On the other hand though, it doesn't appear that either one of those women ever remarried. I don't recall any mentioning of them ever having any other relationships. Uh, the Marsden family is noted by pretty much everybody who's had contact with them are very private. Not exactly shocking given the history of that relationship, but to have two women that were in such a long-term relationship with the same man, to never again have a relationship with any other men. And they live living together until one of them died. Right. That's a very curious thing. It's tricky because the mores of that time, the limited opportunities women had in that time, and the fact that both these women were very progressive, very ahead of their time, or divorced from their times, depending on how you would care to look at it, it could make sense that they recognized that they were never going to find a, a relationship that was as fulfilling as the one they had with William Marsden and with one another if it were just a pure friendship and that they probably recognized that they needed one another to support the family that they created and sustained all those years which would have required everybody to contribute. There's no way that any one of those people could have carried the entire family. They had to work as a unit and therefore there had to be some 
spectacular interpersonal dynamics to allow them to exist within the context of the 20s through the 40s. So it's possible that their commitment to the family was enough to where they would not have had to have a romantic relationship to maintain their partnership in the sustaining of that family. But certainly it would not be at all difficult to read that they all had a connection that was greater than that and that their love for one another could have also sustained them. Let me put it this way. Tim Hanley, who seems to be the most closely aligned to the family, seems to be the most skeptical about a relationship between Elizabeth and Olive. But Jill Lepore, who I feel has the best perspective and sees the whole story through a broader scope and approaches it with the mind of an academic with a greater wealth of evidence behind her opinions, is very much unwilling to commit to the possibility that that was a purely platonic relationship. She states that that's what the family believes. She herself is not as willing to commit to that. And I think that's because there is a lot of evidence that would suggest otherwise, but there's no smoking gun. It's very much a Schrodinger's cat situation. Is the relationship alive or dead? Nobody's going to open the box. There's nobody alive to confirm or deny at this point. So barring some completely left field revelation, we're never going to know. Yeah, because if you go into uh, one of the points that they made into the movie is that the kids, they don't know. The kids live into this weird scenario of having two different women for which they have siblings of two this two different women but then you can see throughout the movie that Olive is the one who put the kids to bed and after the kids are put to bed that's when she sneaks in and goes in bed not to do anything sexual but it's just to be in in bed hugging just like a a regular couple yeah in the movie it's presented that all three of them sleep together in the same bed and again it's it's difficult to dispute that because in the actual Marsden home there was a bathroom that connected both bedrooms so that you would be able to travel between the bedrooms of Olive Byrne and the Marsdens without ever entering the hallway, without ever cluing anybody in as to who was where at what time. Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. And and that's what it alluded into the movie is that, that they were having their lives, but they never uh, completely open to the kids. And that's what the movie kind of alludes to it. So well, not I mean, so much open to the kids, but they were accessible to the kids, but they weren't open about their they situation. They were not open say, you know, well, yeah, your father and you have the head of a relationship with me. So we're talking about in the 40s. You know, I don't know in my in my family about talking about sexual stuff. It was pretty much taboo. You don't discuss, you don't talk, you don't say anything about sex. Now, I know uh, American culture is a bit different, but I will say that in the 40s or 30s, you know, they still have that uh, being uncomfortable, this discussing that, that, that type of situation with your kids, even though you're a scholar, even though you're a psychologist, even though you write books about, you know, sexuality, you know, it might be a little bit uncomfortable to go into that depth, you know, uh, being being afraid that, that the kids might not understand or they might find rejection or they might find like a un, uh, unbiased against one of the other women. So I I can see different scenarios why they probably were not fully open uh, with, with their kids. Well, and it could just be a simple matter of loose lips sink ships. You couldn't necessarily trust children to not say the wrong thing and clue people in if they're trying to keep this situation private. But another issue is that even if they had a very open and accepting family environment with regard to concepts like lesbianism and uh, polyamory, without the children knowing that their parents were involved in a such scenario like that, there's no guarantee that the children would be accepting of that. And I'm not, I don't know for a fact what, how open-minded the various children are. They're, they're four children, plus grandchildren, plus their individual spouses. And in most families I know, there's usually at least one or two members that end up going in the opposite direction of the rest of the family. Yes. And so I don't know what the family dynamic is that would allow for that to be uh, unfurled without it being a problem for somebody. So, so, they, it, so they, it, it would not shock me if they, the family 
way that the three people involved in the core relationship just did not ever spill the beans to the kids. Yeah, it's just like I say, it's trying to either you don't know what the kids are gonna say in school, like, oh yeah, my, my parents are in sex with, with each other, or it's maybe another try to protect the kids too, you know, that childhood, that I guess innocence of the kids at that time. Mm-hmm. So, okay. and uh, here's another thing too is I, I went into this movie with a bit of an agenda. I basically decided that this is a movie that's directed by a lesbian, a woman, and a woman of color, which is quite the trifecta. So I was much, I was disinclined to criticize this woman. Uh, her name is Angela Robinson, in part because to get a movie like this created in the first place, and obviously to come at it from a very personal perspective, I wanted to give her the benefit of the doubt, regardless of how factually accurate the movie was. Again, though, I, because she had made mistakes on the comic book side of things, I was very curious about what mistakes she might have made in terms of uh, the actual representation of these people's lives. It did not help that uh, her IMDb includes movies like Debs, which is where I was first exposed to her. That was a lesbian spy assassin comedy, kind of a goofy movie. And that was actually the where she became familiar with the story of the Marsden. She had grown up watching the Wonder Woman TV show. She had a Wonder Woman lunchbox. And one of the stories of the movie, Debs, gave her a copy of a book. I suspect it's the Les Daniels book. And it blew her mind to find out about the three-way relationship and its impact on the creation of Wonder Woman. So for years, she wanted to create a docudrama about you know that ha- those happenings. But then she went from Debs to, of all things, Herbie Fully Loaded, the, the Lindsay Lohan vehicle of 2005. Um, that pretty much ended her film career. And then she began working in television. I believe that she was a co-executive producer on The, the L Word, which was sort of a spinoff of uh, Gay as Folk. It was basically the lesbian version of that. And that ran for a number of years. She wrote, I think, eight episodes. She might have directed them as well. She also wrote six episodes of True Blood, which you and I watched through to its completion. Not a show I would really take seriously, though. I never took seriously. It's pretty much a trashy show. It was a soap opera. The last few seasons were execrable. Just, <laughs> no, I, no, I barely no. remember them at this point. It was a hate watch for us. We just basically plowed think- through it. To, yeah, and she wrote six episodes, many of them in those final seasons. So that definitely made me like, hmm, I don't know about this. But Well, let me start saying something. Uh, when I went to the movies, I went totally blank. I, I knew it was about Wonder Woman. I saw the trailer. And even prior to going to the movie, I did ask you, I mean, what is this movie? Because I, the, all, the only thing that I remember about the movie was somehow sadomasochism, like submission. And I thought it was going to be more into... Uh, Some sort of Fifty Shades of Grey bondage, yes, sexy, erotic kind of movie. Exactly. So that was kind of like me going to the movie and I I remember asking you once or twice. I didn't know anything about the movie. I just knew there was a little bit about Wonder Woman, but I didn't know anything. So for me, going blank and then actually seeing the film, when after the film I came home and I did the research and I find out that it was actually produced by, by a woman, I was surprised. I was like, huh, well, at least they have that thing right. <laughs> you know, it is, it is, it was refreshing that they that, that the woman now you are listing all her credentials and I you know me I don't know too much about producer directors stuff like that I'm not into depth like 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 you are but I can feel throughout the movie that it was just something off that it, that it wasn't something that a man just directed or not, not or unlike producer. Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman earlier this year you could tell the feminine vibe the movie had yes exactly 
exactly like the more point of view of a woman the more uh, in-depth sentiment and hesitation and fears of a woman especially with uh, Elizabeth <laughs> you know there is a few a uh, few scenes when uh, Elizabeth is trying to act like a jealous wife you know try first trying to be oh no I'm not jealous you know who I don't care if you sleep with that person or not or but you know flirt or stuff I'm, I'm like not that. the jailer of your libido or whatever yeah she says. and then you 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 show up like almost in the next scene and then she's like don't sleep with my husband you know <laughs> I, but no, this is a pg show that was not a pg line of dialogue one of many lines of dialogue that would not get a pg rating yeah and then you go into when uh they uh olive is pretty much throwing throwing herself at uh, elizabeth saying like yes i love you and throughout the show you can see like i never well, thought and she does it partly as a revelation but i think partly to, to diffuse elizabeth as well well if you if you notice throughout the film and this is maybe you got the same the same vibe or not but throughout the movie first when when they were kind of like the her being the professor assistant almost throughout the film i thought that olive was just pure in love with uh, elizabeth at any point in time on the first scenes of the movies i thought that she was not whatsoever yeah, the, interested on the professor the he two won- women had a much greater chemistry than uh olive had with the, the professor and i do agree with you it did feel a little bit like he was the lech going after Olive and Olive was the disinterested party and it wasn't until the scene where the lie detector determines that she's in love with all both parties and everybody's in love with each other essentially that is like oh okay I guess that's where we're going to go with this because I, I I got the same impression that you did yeah so it was kind of like the professor was the third the third wheel he was uh, kind of like in the background he was kind of like the important character but still not you know not into the actual inner circle of this relationship between the Olive and uh, Elizabeth so when the lie when the lie detector was going on and then they asked Olive are you in love with with my husband I was like I'm not sure that that she was gonna say no and then the lie the lie detector will agree that she was not <laughs> but then when it goes into yes I'm like oh wow I mean throughout the movie I never saw any hint of that like nothing the most the most scenes it was just Olive looking at Elizabeth Olive was being amazed by her uh, brilliance and being kind of like feel more comfortable towards her and always have that spike you know that uh that spark sorry that spark and so scenes like that it 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 kind of gave me a vibe that it it was directed produced or written by it was written directed by uh, angela robinson yeah but a woman and not just a man because it has more like uh in-depth feelings and i keep telling you this over and over again i mean i'm i'm kind of like a little tired of warm uh books movies or stuff that is involves women that they are written directed or produced by a man that I'm not having nothing against men but it's just it just feels different because it's you know you, you, can, you can tell that it's not a woman telling a woman's story yes it's not on the woman's mind and the vision and, and that's one and that's one of the things you know I do equality men and women we are we are the same but society through thousands and thousands of years have trained us that our brains work different you know we see different things because the way we are treated the way we are trained the way we are protected in in a way i mean i am a very strong woman i am very very strong i'm very self-motivated i'm uh what do you call it more um i'm independent woman like i don't like to be dependent to for nobody especially depending of a man and so but at the same time in my brain sometimes i 
like you know I feel that connection with Frank you know being like you know cuddle you know just just be with me just just make just just let me for one minute for one five minutes to feel that I can just crumble you know that I can just take down my 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 guard and say you know comfort me and then it just five minutes after that and I feel strong again and I go outside and work and I start kicking guys butt and say you know you're not gonna dominate me just because you're a guy and I am a girl so so and, and it goes that into our brains behaves different than a man perspective of scenarios or different situations are different on, on how a guy will react versus a woman and when I saw this movie I just saw like a, something was not by a man perspective it was more as a woman well, one complaint I hear a lot is that a couple of big Hollywood feminists are James Cameron and Joss Whedon and both of those guys have been hot water recently in the case of James Cameron it's because he uh, has had a strong negative reaction to the Wonder Woman's movie success to uh, the imagery related to her he sees Wonder Woman as a step backwards for women um, as the guy who built up the character of Ellen Ripley in Aliens and who created and developed the character of Sarah Connor in the Terminator movies and then you also have Joss Whedon who has been creating strong female characters since the 90s Buffy the Vampire Slayer was a, a very much an icon of, of uh, women growing up in that time period and then he recently was revealed that he had numerous extramarital relationships throughout his career um, that he appeared to use feminism as a shield against criticism of those relationships that his defense of those relationships also came out to um, some very stereotypical negative views of women uh, all these needy Hollywood actresses they always wanted stuff from me and you know we fell into each other's arms that kind of nonsense so these were guys that at a time when women didn't have a voice they were acclaimed for giving them a degree of divorce of a degree of a voice however uh, Joss Whedon in recent years I've found has gotten a lot of complaints from feminists women feminists that he just writes a guy and then has a woman play a guy in the script he's not writing a woman so much so this archetype of this strong female character often is just guys writing guys that happen to be women and that what women perceive as being a strong character is a lot different from what a man would see as such Uh, women have different allowances and different priorities and see strength in different ways and in different manifestations and and one of the things that sorry for interrupting but but I don't know this this is me talking as a woman like the way I see guys showing up their 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 strength and their dominance is more like you know getting his chest up and being like trying to step on somebody try to make them feel less trying to make them feel that they are useless throw out a badass quip yeah kind of like being always trying to have that insult you know over the top saying that I am better than 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 you and you are you are nobody and trying to use that physical dominance for which uh, me as a the way I see it as a woman trying to show you know to show their dominance is not to that childish situation for a woman trying to to say yes you know you shut up is trying to more into the mental mental way because it is better to not being aggressive but being smart and show them in a very subtle in a very um, intelligent way I can break you without me raising my boys I can make you feel that you're less than less than less than a cockroach without never in a smile leaving my face and you know I I don't have to act delicate I don't have to act like ah, oh my 
my God, you're so cute. No, it's just, we have a different ways of fighting. We have a different ways of showing men that's not how it's going to go. And it's and it's not playing about being a girl. It's, it's not playing like our feminist way, but we don't have to go into that. Oh, I'm a macho. I'm going to put, you know, I'm going to step on you and, and crush you. I'm like, no, that's not how we do it. We, we do it more subtle, more intelligent way. And that's, I think that's the difference between the dominance of a man and a woman. And that's what I see in, in a lot of movies and a lot of books that when a guy tried to write a woman and tried to make her feel that dominance, it's like, yeah, that's not how we do it. I mean, yes, we we can be very strong. I mean, I, for example, I took six years of karate. I know how to defend myself very well. I know how to box because I did a kick, a kick, a kick boxing as well. I'm tall. I play a lot of sports when I was young. <laughs> so, and I have an older brother, you know, that pretty much we fought all the time. So I am not a delicate flower by any means. Like when it times comes, I know somebody might be kicking my ass. I am against violence and I will not raise a hand, but I'm not going to just kind of just be like, oh, help me, help me. No, I mean, it just, but, but, but that violence is not my first instinct. My first instinct is trying to fight in a smart way and more non-violent and more like psychological way. So that's what I'm saying that men's is like their first, their first reaction is to have that macho attitude and strong and try to fight and, and, and use violence. That's not how we do it. <laughs> and, and when a man writes a woman in that way, it rings false. Yes. Um, but getting back to the movie, what I wonder is if Angela Robinson approached the relationship between Elizabeth and Olive in the way that she did, where she sets up the lack of chemistry to some degree. I mean, once the relationship gets started, you feel more of a connection between Olive and William. But really, the movie is showing you the relationship between Olive and Elizabeth. And for people who aren't familiar with the history, I'm sure it was kind of a, whoa, what a twist that they're all in love with each other. And more specifically, that Olive and Elizabeth are kind of closer in terms of the romantic love, where to some degree, it feels like William has both a libidinous desire for both women, but also has almost like a more platonic love with the both of them, where they're the ones who have the more romantic relationship with each other. Like the the, the larger connection. Yeah. And that's and that's one of the things that they show in the in in the movie when Olive asked Elizabeth about how that the William and her met and she was saying, Oh, we know we know each other since since childhood and we've been always been like very good friends and mm. that's how I used to see him as a friend and then he started asking if, if I will marry him and then she was hesitant. So in that whole conversation what I took is that Elizabeth never had in the movie I'm talking about uh, Elizabeth never had like a very in-depth love like oh my god I'm so in love with you I you you are my prince and you're my no it was more like he's very smart we pretty much have the same degrees we are we have a lot in common it's a mind that it respects me as a woman and now as you as you know Frank I mean that is very very important for for a strong woman to have a man that respects that and see that and come terms with that and don't and don't feel intimidated and so for a woman as a, a Elizabeth being that that smart and that professional that have different master's degrees to find a guy who sees her as a person as a very 
smart person as a colleague as a friend and then you know I think that it comes kind of like okay so I feel that I love this guy and I'll be okay marrying this guy and then kind of like their love and, and stuff like that develop that's what I got they're, from the they're, movie. They're, they are very compatible companions yes whereas a relationship in the movie between Olive and Elizabeth is very clearly more romantic yes it's and more, more fulfilling it's more yep. passion and as I don't know if you got that same that, that same impression that once again William was the third wheel he yep. was only he was just kind of like the the guy in the background mm-hmm. kind of like the the one with the penis in a sense ducky with benefits yes <laughs> so he was the lucky one to be to be kind of uh, being allowed to play you know in the in the cool group yeah. with the with the cool chicks he gets to join in yeah yeah um, and see but- and that's and that's kind of refreshing too and that's when I thought it was like surprised that he was a woman because when you see a lot of movies that it has that relationship between a guy and two and two girls they 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 always portray the guy as oh the center of attention the, the object ex- of their affections yes that he's the one who has the dominance that he's the one who is making these two girls accept each other because they all love me and I am the best of the best and I am the la, uh, creme de la creme you know but in this movie there uh, he was in the background he was like no 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 you're here because we are letting you be here and you respect us and you treat us well and that's why you're here not because of you of we we're not uh uh go what do you call it with the sun um or revolving around your we don't, we're not we in your don't, satellite we're not your satellites we're not in your orbit exactly you're in our orbit yeah you are kind of like the moon uh moving towards our center of gravity not the other way around and that's why i i can see that yes it's very clear now that i know that it's made by a woman um mm. so yeah. well and what i'm wonder about too is i think clearly robinson could invest more of herself in a lesbian relationship on film than she would be able to invest in a hetero relationship or even a poly relationship but also by firmly establishing the chemistry between elizabeth and olive if you're going into the movie expecting it to be a love triangle in the fashion that you referred to and it turns out that it's ending up being you know not only is it a a cooperative between three people but the intense passionate relationship between the two women that would be a big twist for you and i understand that with a lot of preview audiences they're like oh my uh but it's all laid out for you so it's either a practical concern where you're making sure to set this up so that when the twist comes people don't expect it or or they may not be seeing it coming but when it appears they're not they have to think back and go well wait they really did set that up or it might just be that, that was the interest the greater interest that robinson had and that was manifest in the production of the film yes. so let's take a minute and look at some of the actual you know factual information related to this uh, olive byrne was in fact the daughter of ethel byrne and the niece of margaret sanger are you familiar with either one of those women no okay the, well i know because of what they say in the movie yeah Byrne and sanger were sisters and there was a third woman that they partnered with who i believe was involved with the new york art scene uh, theater i think and they've put together the first contraceptive health outlet in new york i believe it was around like 1916 somewhere in that that realm they were almost immediately shut down an undercover police officer came in and and basically compromised them and got the whole thing shut down ethel Byrne ended up in prison and she went on a hunger strike she went roughly seven days without any food or water which very much imperiled her life margaret sanger authorized the force feeding of her sister to make sure that she did not die and then she cut a deal with the governor of new york to basically say you know let my sister out of jail and then you're never going to hear from her again she's we're going to disappear her and she abided by that so it's an interesting situation where ethel byrne was clearly the more committed of the two women to the cause she was willing to sacrifice her life to the cause of preventing back alley abortions that was killing women left and right in that time period and forwarding contraceptive information 
information to help women to prevent unwanted pregnancies and the, the consequences that can come from that. But Ethel ends up getting packed off and, and pushed out. Sanger, on the other hand, at one point fled the country and was operating out of England. Both of them are, were moneyed and were able to sustain their political agenda for a long period of time. You could argue that Margaret was the more pragmatic of the two and she's the one that became famous. Margaret Sanger is very well known as the founder of what would become Planned Parenthood and as one of the primary proponents to getting contraceptives to women throughout the 20th century, leading to the sexual revolution at the creation of the pill in the 1960s. So Byrne is, you know, the daughter of one, the niece of another, and then she ends up getting involved in this very unique relationship. I've not been able to find a lot of information on what her relationship was to either of these famous women in her life, though. But that was factually correct. I believe that that was uncovered by Jill Lepore, which is another thing to her credit and uh, leads credence to her opinions, her conclusions about these various relationships over some of the other people that are involved with this debate. As far as the lie detector, I remember you were definitely, seemed to be uh, very amused by the sequences involving that device. You seem to get a kick out of that. The truth is, in my estimation, that the connection between Professor William Marston and the creation of the polygraph has always been inflated, I think in large part by Marston himself. He was working in the same veins as the people who worked on the polygraph. His research may have informed that, but his never worked. His device never worked. And then much of the time, he was the one who claimed to have determined the relationship between systolic blood pressure and stresses that could indicate lying. It was later mentioned by various people that, no, it was actually Elizabeth that came up with that. So this is a man who was kind of known to take claim, to make claims that were spurious, we'll say. He also seemed to really enjoy hooking women up to his bogus device. I can also speak to the polygraph too, as a person who's been forcibly hooked up to polygraph machines in the past. There's a reason why courts don't accept them as factual. They are not accurate devices. Well, no, and that's and that's one of the things that I always, I never been into one. I never been subjected to one, but it's kind of fascinating in a way of, yeah, but even if they ask you a question that it will make you uncomfortable, even telling the truth or not, you might get nervous or your uh, body start reacting, even though you say you tell the truth. Yeah. So no, it, Actually, the research shows that innocent people are more likely to have like anxiety attacks and the like that would give them false positives. Well, yeah, it's like I am a, you know, I do have a lot of anxieties, right? So mm-hmm. it's like even within not me saying lies or anything, I mean, just, but the fact of it, it, it will be like, oh my God, you know, it's yeah. my heart rate is going to start going on. So I don't think that there is a very accurate, but it's always well, fascinating. Oh yeah, it's it's a, it's a definitely a fascinating premise. It's just not factually correct. Uh, another thing is that sociopaths have a tendency to pass polygraphs because they can commit to their lies and do not feel any remorse or any anxiety about the yeah. telling of those lies. And it's obviously a very popular tool in interrogation. It's a very good intimidation tool. It's a good way of prying a confession. Well, see, but even even with just that, you know, uh, when I was growing up, you know, I'm the youngest person, right? So the blame, it was always to me. Like if something happened uh, around, uh, around the house, it was my fault uh, because I was the more like fixing stuff and going up and like, like being very uh, active uh, girl. So I remember there's something broke in the house and it, and it wasn't me. Just right out the bat, I always felt nervous because I knew my mom is going to come and talk to me and ask me. And if I say no, she would just look at me. And, and for some reason, when I started getting really, really nervous, I started to laugh, like in a very nervous laugh. And then I started to laugh and say, no, it wasn't me. But then it's like, yeah, see, it was you. It was you because you're laughing. And I'm like, no, I'm laughing because I'm nervous and I knew you that you were going to blame me. So it is the same situation with this, uh, the, the lie detector. Yeah. Basically, Mars then has always claimed undue credit for the creation of a device that is not 
not scientifically accurate and is not admissible in a court of law uh, and has been quite damaging to a large number of people. He's not a credible source and he's taking credit for something that is not a credible device scientifically. So that's one fruit of a tree of baloney, you know, that related to this character. Some other stuff that's been mentioned is that there is some evidence that Marsden had threatened to leave the marriage with Elizabeth had she not allowed Olive into the relationship. Both as portrayed in the movie and as uh, referred to by members of the family, that doesn't seem very likely that Elizabeth was the kind of person that would have buckled under that sort of pressure. I'm not sure which member. It might have been Christy Marsden who said basically that William had advanced the notion that he wanted to have this relationship with Olive, had discussed it with Elizabeth, and Elizabeth was supposed to have taken like a six-hour walk and just thought about the possibilities. And the conclusion that he came to is that she wanted a family, but she knew that she would have to sacrifice the career that she wanted to have for that family, and she wasn't willing to do that. She wanted to have a relationship to her family the way a man did. And so if Olive were there to actually raise the children to be, quote-unquote, the housewife of the family, knowing full well that that couldn't be William because William was just such a flipper to gibbet. You know, this guy, in the movie, they try to tell you that he went from job to job in part because of the relationships that he was having that the academia and society frowned upon. But he was bouncing from job to job before he ever met Olive Byrne. Uh, he was never somebody who was very committed to any one thing. He was a guy who was always seeming to be an attention seeker, a rabble rouser. Yes, he was obviously a very vocal feminist, but he, he was also a guy who liked to talk out of his boo-boo and stir up stuff and create a lot of attention, make really ridiculous statements that he couldn't really back up for the attention, for personal gain. He was kind of a communist. He was kind of a huckster. He was a guy who had all these letters after his name, although when he graduated for one of his degrees, it was noted that he really never went to class, just passed his test, but he didn't go to classes. My feeling, based on what I've read and what we saw in the movie as well, I suspect that the real brains of the operation was Elizabeth. I think that she was the determined one. She was the practical one. She was the one who drove that family. And she probably helped him get the degrees that he had and fully earned hers. Uh, and, and she carried him a lot of the time, especially in the 1930s after they started having their relationship. And it, it wasn't just a matter of the relationship causing problems. It's just that William was not somebody who was bankable as, as somebody who would bring in money. He wrote books. He tried to break into Hollywood. He was doing advisory work for Hollywood for a period of time in the 1930s. He was constantly trying to find an angle without really committing to the work that was necessary to build a career somewhere. And it was Elizabeth that went to work specifically with the Metropolitan Life Insurance. She did research writing. She edited an edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica and edited various <laughs> magazines. So when they show her in the movie she's taking some crummy secretarial job, that's not correct. She had respectable jobs and was bringing in respectable money. I don't know to what degree she brought in money. I'm not sure to what degree Olive brought in money, but Olive was working. She was also writing articles for magazines and stuff. Oh, wow. So both of these women were more successful throughout the 1930s than William was. He was constantly going after a dream that wasn't manifesting from throughout that decade. They were the ones who were sustaining that family. Moving forward, some other stuff in the movie. They had the character of Charles Goyette, who was the godfather of American fetish art. And they used that, the meeting of William Marston with this person to show his interest in fetish art and in how bondage related to his disc theory that he believed that there were elemental units in relationship between people. Uh, what, do you remember the, what they were? Mm, uh... Wasn't it like dominant submission, inducement, and compliance? Yes. And how basically his negative in that was compliance, that people who are compliant are unhappy, but if you correctly induce them, then you can get them to do what you want them to do, and they'll be happy about it. This theory is not something that would ever caught on, by the way, but it's uh, one of the major threads of this movie. It's one of the, part of the spine of this movie. And it was this meeting with uh, Charles Goyette that was supposed to not only inform how to employ disc theory and relate it to human sexuality, and which was conveyed in part through the Wonder Woman comic books that were to come, but also all the, the rope tricks and the costumes 
that came from this fetish stuff was supposed to have informed the Wonder Woman look and, yes, and her and they, accoutrement. Yeah, and they actually show it very, very clear when uh, Olaf puts the tiara and the costume and then they have this light behind her mm-hmm. and then it's saying like, oh, and Wonder Woman is born. You know, and that's kind of like the scene that you're that you're referring to. Yeah, and there's no evidence that those two men ever met. Um, there's no evidence really that William Marston even had any particular interest in fetish pornography any of that stuff or that he brought it into the household nobody has copped any of that sort of stuff almost certainly the scene as it plays out never happened I find it difficult to believe that he would suddenly discover this aspect in his life where he would have been at least in his 40s or 50s before he would have jumped into that so that seems a little disingenuous it's also amusing that that sequence in particular was heavily promoted in movie posters and the like related to this movie and Christy Marston pointed out quite rightly that the style of those posters very strongly mimicked the Wonder Woman movie of earlier this year trying to ride on its coattails. The scene makes sense related to the themes as presented by Angela Robinson in the movie, but to- totally bogus. Well, and that's and that's one of the things that I keep looking at you throughout the whole movie. And uh, just to point it out, we we went to a function that we were the only two in the movie theater, mm-hmm. so it was nobody else in there. So I kind of felt a little bit freely because I don't like people talking. In yeah, the we're able movie to talk theater. to one another because it's just the two yeah. Of us. I was able to kind of say, oh, I'm sorry. And and my comment to you about the, oh, I'm sorry, is because throughout the whole movie, so now, when I met Frank many, many years ago, uh, you know, me talking about Wonder Woman to him, it was more about a sexual, you know. I knew that Frank was very much uh, fond of Wonder Woman and that he loved Wonder Woman, but I always took it on the early times as a sexual, you know, because he's a guy, a girl, kind of like the same thing as a lot of documentaries and a lot of things were, were saying that a lot of uh, soldiers in World War II or, or in Vietnam, they have that comics to kind of like a pornographical thing. Right. There the, they, 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 they were multi-use. <laughs> yes. So instead of the story, you know, be thinking about more in terms of a sexual way of uh, Wonder Woman. And uh, when I kind of mentioned it to Frank about, oh yeah, you know, Wonder Woman in a sexual way, you pretty much like shut me down and say, no, 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 no. I don't see Wonder Woman on those terms uh, I see her mom as a mo- like I see her more as a motherly figure more as a woman uh, like respectful women and not just a, you know and it's not whatsoever on a sexual way and throughout this movie even since like minute one when they start you know going into the creation of Wonder Woman you know with the bracelets of Olive and having sexual relationships between Elizabeth and Olive and, and, the, and the robe like throughout the movie you can see like a very sexual Wonder Woman. Like Wonder Woman was created on a sexual way. And they keep pointing out throughout the movie with, you know, with the fetish about uh, how Wonder Woman throughout the comics, uh, she's always tied up or she's always like in a submissive way or 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 she's always in a sexual kind of situation without pointing out that it's sexual. And then, so you, you have the scene when they met this guy, you know, the submission guy, and they start talking about, oh, yeah, this is how women like it and they start uh, uh, roping Olive and uh, Elizabeth like right out the bat it's like I don't like that you don't have to do that you don't have to submit yourself yeah, Elizabeth to that. is saying that to Olive yeah so so she's saying no you don't have to and Olive being the more submissive portraying in the in the in the movie she's like oh I don't care I don't mind I'm okay with that you know and so well ultimately what silences Elizabeth is Olive says no I want this yes and then uh, Elizabeth okay well if you want this let me do it 
instead of William because I would do it with more care like with more love instead of just doing it for like a sexual pleasure mm-hmm. it would be more I want to please you on 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 how you want to play this this game and then okay so it was this scene of them being in that place when uh, Elizabeth and William they're arguing about no this is not right this is just horrible this is just not a scenario that I that I want for us and then at that time Elizabeth found the tiara and then puts it on and then just showed it to or no her. Olive puts on the tiara yes yes yes, yes. Yeah. sorry 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 Olive and so she goes into this place where one where Wonder Woman is worn so like right at the bat like right there it's just all sexual stuff it's all sexual revelation I, I want to well, point out too how much those scenes echoed a movie from about 20 years ago called Exit Eden and uh, Danny Delaney's being indoctrinated into I don't know that's the word but being inducted into the circles of BDSM by Hector Elizondo's character I saw a lot of parallels there I, I would have a tough time believing that Angela Robinson had never seen that movie because it felt so similar in terms of the dynamics so yeah so so I'm I'm watching those scenes and I keep over looking at you and I just feel that discomfort it's like I feel that you are seeing that movie in those scenes and and somehow this is gonna sound sound like really really wrong but it's just like when a, a son talks sexual stuff about the mom mm-hmm. you know I, you know that that kind of awkwardness that the kind of uncomfortable situation of like I don't want to think about my 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 mom being a sexual being you know <laughs> and it's like that's that's kind of like the son and mom relationship and throughout those those scenes I keep looking at you and kind of feeling that oh Frank is feeling really uncomfortable and and he doesn't like that situation because it's not a Wonder Woman as a strong person as a as a very capable person as a heroine they're 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 making it more as an asexual object so what are your thoughts about that uh, I wouldn't I don't think that the word discomfort is is the one I would use uh, in this particular situation I was more bored I'm not really obviously because I don't come at Wonder Woman uh, from a sexual place I, I'm not interested in really seeing that aspect of the character I don't have a problem with her having relationships just like I don't you know another favorite character of mine is Captain America there's a lot of parallels between those two characters and you know Captain America has girlfriends but romance really isn't a bigger part of his story it's really about the action and the ideals and everything else it's not about him getting his freak on with his various girlfriends and such I, I'm not unwilling to acknowledge either one of those characters sex lives and I'm not unwilling to acknowledge there is a kink factor to Wonder Woman especially the, the early work that's just not the area that interests well, no. me I mean, it's not, so and, and, and again because of the parallels to movies I've seen before I was just kind of bored with that part and was just kind of ready for it to be over it really played long and I was just kind of like okay can we get can we I know well, that you have to acknowledge not, this but do you have to spend so much time on it it is not about the the romance and the sexuality of the superhero because come on let's face it it's like she's she's an adult Captain America is an adult so they're so they're gonna have sexual relationship and they're gonna have romance and they're gonna have crushes you know that's that's part of life you know it's like your mom yeah when you get older you're gonna think about yeah I mean she's mm. a person you yeah. know she is a human being with the same things that other people has but just just the idea of Wonder Woman creation mm-hmm. and not the comics afterwards but the creation of it it was more of like just a pure sexual image and she was created based on that and that's what it got from the movie it wasn't created like oh yes let's let's create a comic book about this woman that is a superhero that is very capable just like a guy that is very smart just as a guy that can get into fights and get and can get into all that scenarios and show up her doing the saving and not somebody saving her 
type of situation. It was more like, oh, she was created in the pure sense of like a sexual symbol. Uh, and, and, and that kind of little bit to me bugged me a little bit because it's like you're coming back to the same situation as seeing women just as a sex as a sex symbol. Woman is not just sexual symbol. Is a woman is not just a person that you have sexual relationships with and it's just kind of put out with. A woman is totally more complex and 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 more different than 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 that. Yes, it's part of us, but it's not the only thing. And that's the thing that kind of bugged me about that section. And that's what I keep looking at you. So yeah. okay. Well, and another issue is that for a movie that's about creators of Wonder Woman, it spends remarkably little time discussing the creation of that character and a lot of time just talking about the personal lives of the people related to that creation and in the areas where they do approach the creation of Wonder Woman in the movie they do it very badly I feel I think that some of the worst stuff in the movie is the stuff related to Wonder Woman it's a better movie when it's just a romance between these three people so even though I acknowledge the role that Bondage played in the popularity of Wonder Woman in her day I didn't read the Golden Age Wonder Woman stuff when I was a kid that's not how I got into that character I don't think that that's a very sustainable aspect of the character in the modern era and it's not what interests me so that's just another element of the movie handling something at length in a way that I just wasn't very interested in well let me let me ask you something so you have not read any of the golden age Wonder Woman created but this uh, William guy no I've, I've read some of the stories I'm not a I often reference Marston because I've read enough about him to have a sense of what he was trying to accomplish in these stories and in particular the elements that he wanted to accomplish that I agree with and uh, support there's other stuff that he was concerned about that I am not uh, well let me and let I'm not, me, and I'm not and I'm not trying to diminish that I'm not trying to condemn all that I'm just I'm not very interested in it and I don't know that it's helpful to moving the character forward and having her be an icon for people and especially women so I have read a number of the Marston stories I enjoy the parts of those stories I enjoy and there are parts of those stories where I just sort of roll my eyes and go okay let's or I kind of almost kind of want to flip through it and move on to the next thing because there is so much bondage there is so much kinky fetish stuff and I don't I don't I, I shouldn't even use the word kinky because it, it's judgmental and I'm not trying to be judgmental I'm not opposed to that I, I just it's not what brings me to the table either well let me ask you this because the the reason why I brought up this is because you know how earlier you were you were talking about what the lie detector and how Elizabeth was bringing like all this accomplishment to the to the household she was the one bringing the money she yeah. was kind of like being the more successful she was the backbone of the family I think figured, yeah, yeah she was like the ma- the matriarch so now the reason why I'm asking if you read uh, comics from Wonder Woman at that time supposedly written by by William is if you hand detect any hand of Elizabeth involvement on that or it was just pure William writing those comics and come out with all those ideas or do, do you think that Elizabeth and Olive probably contributed or they did the writing or they kind of get into some of the story we'll, we'll definitely we'll get into that we're, let me pick back up then from uh, where we were looking at the, the historical creation of the character okay um, one of the major turning points for the household and for the fortunes of William Marston was actually through Olive Olive Byrne had started bringing money into the household by writing articles for various magazines in particular she took on the pseudonym Olive Richard and wrote for Family Circle where she created a scenario where she would basically pretend like she didn't know William Marston you know personally and would consult him about various family problems that she had as a single mother of children and stuff and then he would espouse his beliefs and his advice and this like and this went on and on throughout Family Circle and at one point uh, that led to a 
an article about comic books, uh, an article called Don't Laugh at the Comics, where Marston said a lot of good things about comics at a time where there was a lot of concern about how healthy and how beneficial comic books were for children and all these people that have been exposed to it. He felt that they had educational value, but he had problems with what he called the blood-curdling masculinity and violence depicted in the comic books. And this article attracted the attention of Max Gaines in part because William Moulton Marston had clearly done his research on comic book people and specifically name-checked Max Gaines as somebody who was doing comics right, who was doing it the right way and, and was doing stuff that was beneficial for kids, which gets back to that hucksterism. This is a guy who used his very tangential relationship to the polygraph machine to become a pitchman for Gillette Blades and stuff. I mean, this is a guy who was constantly sniffing around Hollywood trying to make money. All these articles, all these scams he's running with Olive. You know, he's got this whole series of articles where she's pretending she's somebody that she's not and uh, seeking his advice. So it's it's a, it's a, seems like a bit of a con, right? Yeah. And it really, I strongly suspect that uh, Marston saw opportunity in comics. This was an industry that was booming, but there was very little regulation, very little order. It's an industry built up by young men. So many of the people involved with comics were in their teens and 20s while they're doing this stuff. They were uneducated people for the most part. And then he walks in and starts name-checking specific people in comics like, hey, there's a guy who's doing the job, right? And I am a professor, a former Harvard professor, and I have all these credentials. I'm a very smart man. You should listen to me. (laughs) I know what I'm talking about. And he attracted Gaines' attention by specifically name-dropping him. And sure enough, Gaines brings Marsden on as an educational consultant for what would become DC Comics. Uh, But specifically, Gaines had actually basically created the comic book medium. Not the comic book medium. He created the comic book as we know it today. He was the guy who figured out that if you folded uh, the newsprint in a certain way and stapled it, you could create a magazine out of a newspaper that you could sell that would have a shelf life that wouldn't just be a giveaway in a newspaper. And he's the one who first started getting comic books out out into the stands. It didn't work out for him initially, um, but he eventually, when the the guys who did make a a really good go of it with comics, uh, National Periodical Publications, the creators of Superman and Batman, or the publishers of them, um, one of the guys who's related to that, Harry Donenfeld, felt that they the National was producing enough books that they didn't need to overwhelm the market, that they had their piece and they just need to maintain. Jack Leibowitz was like, nah, there's still more money to be mined here. So he hooked up with Max Gaines and, and they formed All-American and they were looking for new stars and new talent. Uh, they'd done fairly well with themselves with some characters, Flash, The Flash, Green Lantern, Hawkman. But Gaines seemed to always be a person who was trying to elevate the art form. He, w- he wanted comics to be more than just gutter trash. Jack Leibowitz was also somebody who raised the bar. He was not somebody who was willing to sell trash to children he, he up to a point you know he would he would go for the low-hanging fruit but he made sure they had educational value he made sure that they were socially acceptable that he wasn't making things too lurid um so they had standards and they were constantly looking to raise the standards which is the reason why they would have things like an educational board in the first place and one of the reasons why they'd go after a guy like marsden to work with them and if i recall correctly it was max Gaines who kind of joked at one point you know hey you think you know how to do comic books why don't you just come up with a comic book character and marsden was like ho ho i think i'll do that and specifically though he was going to do a hero just like everybody else does and he has claimed that he was going to do a heroine but his wife before she passed away said that no i wanted him i asked him specifically to create a heroine there's too many guys in comics create a female hero olive's son believes that olive was the model for the figure of wonder woman she was tall she had dark hair she wore heavy indian bracelets other members of the family think that elizabeth may have contributed because olive was kind of a rail where both wonder woman and apparently Elizabeth were a little bit more curvy so it feels like more of an amalgamation of those two women but especially the bracelets are very clearly inspired by Olive Byrne no, and we're not talking about just uh, 
physical figure. I mean, you know, like if you see Wonder Woman, and and you will know more Wonder Woman than I that I do. But so in phys in physique, and even in the movies, they say you know in in physique and the actual physical of Wonder Woman. Yeah, it was more like Olive, but in more or, or on how Wonder Woman is as a person, as a character on the on the inside. It was more like Elizabeth, strong, capable, and and more kind of like a, a go getter type of person. I, I tend to think they were both strong women because I think that one of the reasons why no, they... no, I'm saying about based on the movie, right, right. But uh, but I also think that what works is that both of these are strong, intelligent, educated women. I don't think that Elizabeth would have let just some random woman into her family. I think she needed somebody that she could see as a peer, somebody that she could have conversations with, and they understand what she's talking about. You needed three intelligent people to to form that dynamic. I have a hard time believing that these women did not influence the character. It's it's pretty well documented that William Moulton Marston was very, very hands-on in the creation of Wonder Woman. Again, there were so many young kids who didn't know anything about business that got into comic books and got ripped off. Jack Kirby foremost among them. A guy who was a prodigious talent, created an enormous number of characters and concepts, owned none of them, virtually none of them. Was constantly lied to by businessmen, uh, foremost among them Martin Goodman and his proxy Stan Lee, and ripped off by those two gentlemen over and over again. As much as I have affection for Stan Lee, he definitely contributed to the continuous exploitation of Jack Kirby. The people whose names you associate with the big characters were usually a little bit more savvy about business. Bob Kane was a young man, but he was fairly savvy. He managed to cut a pretty good deal for the creation of Batman. He also had, if I recall correctly, reasonably wealthy parents, and he was able to scam DC a number of times to get more and more of a share of Batman and more and more creative control over Batman, even more so than what he had when he signed a fairly sweet deal for the character to begin with. And so Bob Kane, despite rarely ever actually producing anything in terms of story or art, was able to have a whole team of people ghost the book for him and create tons of very long livid concepts for him and never get a bit of credit. Everything was signed into Bob Kane's name. Joe Siegel and Jerry Schuster had a decent deal. After the fact, they were able to kind of like, they got burned and then because your man was a big success, they were able to kind of claw back some money, not very much in the way of rights. Then they got burned again in part because Jerry Siegel specifically kept making really big mistakes in trying to think that he had greater legal rights and greater legal recourse in determining the fate and the rights over Superman than he actually had. Um, but in the 1970s, DC was basically shamed into giving them some honorariums and, and a stipend. William Moulton Marston, because he was an intelligent man, he was a man with a, you know, a law degree who had passed the bar, he had a wife who had the same credentials and had actually used them to a greater degree. He was able to basically lord over these young guys who are running All-American Comics and have a much greater creative control and a much greater right share to the point where my understanding and I've talked to some of the creators involved with the character the Marston State had rights to Wonder Woman up through to the 90s and basically they were able to have certain controls over Wonder Woman that prevented National from doing a lot of stuff with the character and basically forced them to keep the character in print indefinitely and it was only really relatively recently in the last say 20 years or so that National basically bought off most of those rights and, and don't have to kowtow so much to the Marston Estate as they once did he determined who his artist was going to be and dictated to that artist the content of his art in a similar fashion as Alan Moore does with his scripts where he would basically write a novella that would be adapted into a comic book story. But it also became something of a family environment because one of his daughter-in-laws would do the lettering on the strip. His sons, particularly Pete Marsden, actually gave plot ideas to him. Pete actually wrote some scripts for him. And it's very difficult to believe that either actively or passively that the women in his life informed the, the writing that he was doing. Certainly it's been acknowledged and it was especially advanced by the Jill Lepore book how much feminist iconography of the like that Margaret Sanger trafficked in found its way 
way into the Wonder Woman's trip. And obviously, Olive would have been a pretty direct line to that influence, but Marsden was always hooked up into the, the feminist mindset and was very up on their uh, propaganda, essentially. To whatever degree the women contributed, Marsden definitely soaked up a lot of stuff around him, and I think that those influences reflected in the work. Okay, but so also but also his family contributed directly to the stories as well. But it's mainly the family contributing to the, to the story, I mean, to the creation. It was mainly the male, the males, not too much of the females. And one point, maybe William, you know, show it before submitting so it to the to the final approval. It's like, okay, so are you think this is this script will will be okay? And you don't think that Elizabeth nor Olive say like, yeah, I don't like this part. Maybe change it for this, or maybe, or you don't think that they didn't have like that major involvement that it was mainly a, a guy William writing one. I think that Marsden wrote the majority of the scripts throughout the early years. I firmly believe that his entire family influenced the direction of the stories and I, I have no doubt that he was discussing the content of those stories with his significant others and his family members and that they had an influence on the direction. I don't think that they actively wrote very much of the material but I can't believe that it didn't have a strong influence on the course of that material. How many people have written Wonder Woman throughout the time and then I did ask you if it was mainly guys or mainly women. Do you see any change how they portray Wonder Woman? Because he, you, you mean like versus how Marston did her? Yeah, because uh, you're saying that yeah, it was a kind of like a family scenario about how possibly Elizabeth and Olive might have helped or not not contributed, but kind of help a, li- a little bit on the stories, on the uh, ideas, the son, the sister-in-law. So you have like a different people pitching in into one story, into one comic, and creating what we know Wonder Woman, right? Yeah. Later on, throughout the years, you did mention that there's like two other main guys who work on Wonder Woman, and I start to to think it's like how is it different from that Golden Age era to the time with this other two guys create Wonder Woman, and if you have any change on attitudes or or capabilities or anything to do with Wonder Woman, the other two main men who charted the course of Wonder Woman's existence were Robert Kaniger, were Robert Kaniger, a writer-editor who handled the character from the late 40s until the late 60s. So that is after Williams died. After he's passed. Uh, not directly afterwards, but, you know, within a couple of years of that happening. He charted the character's course for like 20 years, left for a period of time, then it came back for about a year or so. And Kaniger's material relative to Marsden was severely retrograde. Uh, he... <sighs> You could commend him for being compared to the general industry and compared to media in general, still maintained a vestige of the feminism presented by Marsden. But he was so much less pronounced, so sanitized, so compromised by the mentality of Robert Kaniger and his having a much more traditional view of the roles of women. He probably did the best that he was capable of doing to be a progressive voice for that character. But it's very hard to read his stories from those years and not see it reflecting 50s and 60s wide hetero male values where Marsden was able to speak more beyond his experience and speak in a much more feminine voice and than then you can see that, of. That, that it has some help from another woman you can sense a woman's hand on his work he wasn't macho enough to kind of say oh I'm just gonna write this and it's gonna be just mine and I'm gonna ask and I am not gonna ask opinions or criticism from other people especially 
women. So what I'm picturing is that this second guy, although like you say, he's trying very hard to kind of be the same type of situation to like a strong woman. I picture him in my mind and, and I'm not saying this is true, but what I'm picturing is that he was more like, I'm just going to write what I want to write without asking opinions, especially of women, especially of uh, like showing them, do you think that this is how a woman will, will react in to this situation? Or do you think it's too like stereotypical of a man if I wrote this way? You know, can I be more? So do you agree with that or do you disagree on your best of your knowledge? William Moulton Marston was a devout, even radical feminist who was very much aware of their philosophy and their goals. He was a psychologist who employed a variety of techniques to induce people to his way of thinking. He was a person who believed that female superiority, not just equality, but female superiority was the most desirable course for human existence. And in particular, he believed that within 100 years that the United States would be ruled over by a matriarchy of utter dominance of women, of men, of women over men. Well, we are getting there. <laughs> Robert Kaniger was a guy who cashed checks for 20 years, trying to write a watered down, pale semblance of that philosophy without any strong indication that he had any great sympathy toward that the goals of Marsden or feminism. Quite probably consulted wife, daughters, what have you, but it just, it's nowhere near the same thing. And it, there was very much the sense in his writing and in the writings related to his work that there's an obligatory quality to it all, that DC had to put this book out. They put as little effort as possible into sustaining this book to maintain the rights that they had over the character, and it showed. And so then the third creator of note is George Perez, who took over the character in 1987 at a time where she was at her, probably her lowest ebb creatively and commercially, and rebuilt a fan base, a very impassioned fan base, gave her some degree of commercial clout for a period of time, and his vision of the character has been reflected in virtually every incarnation that followed him. I think to some degree to the character's detriment, I think there are things that he brought to the character that were beneficial. He definitely brought back a feminism that had been lacking uh, in the years since Marsden's departure. He found a way of moving Wonder Woman into a more globalist character, uh, uh, where she had previously been a very American-centric, patriotic-type character. He made her more of a global citizen and gave her a more progressive feminism, while also stripping her of virtually every vestige of sexuality and reverting her from a woman into something that was closer to a girl in terms of her mentality and approach to the world. So nobody could write Wonder Woman like Marsden. I don't think that anybody maybe should draw write Woman like Marsden, especially in the modern context. Um, but the spirit of, of Marsden, if you can recapture that, it's really the spirit of Wonder Woman and the best Wonder Woman projects take that energy and that conviction to heart and, and manifest them on the page. Fair enough. And the great thing about this extended Marsden family is when I say that, it doesn't necessarily have to refer to William Moulton Marsden. I, when I say Marsden, I think that the whole family contributed and uh, uh, their spirit is within the character in perpetuity. Yeah, okay. But getting into those details too, this is what, one of the areas where the movie really kicked me out because Oliver Platt plays Max Gaines in the movie and he's foul-mouthed and he's dismissive and he seems very broken down and everything else. And as you as they portray in the movie, Marsden is, you know, some down-in-his-luck loser who's coming to DC begging for scraps while also being like a, a, an obvious, like something of a crazy person with this radical agenda that he's trying to put down a person's desk. It does not portray Marsden very well. It, it does not reflect any resemblance of a reality that's been well-documented. And I don't think it reflected the character of Max Gaines well either. But what's also funny is that character is a combination of two different characters, Max Gaines and Sheldon Mayer, who was the editor and of the of the Wonder Woman strip and the, and the Sensation Comics book that she was published in. Uh, he's the one who took Suprema the Wonder Woman and shortened it down to Wonder Woman. Uh, and he was a person who was constantly 
constantly in conflict with Marsden over the sexual content and the kink factor in the book. Sheldon was constantly trying to kind of rein Marsden in. Had some success with that. Probably maybe curbed some of the worst instincts of Marsden. And this character is completely absent from the movie. And then the character of Max Gaines, I, I really had trouble with that because Gaines, again, as I said, was a person who had a, had a, a certain standard and he wanted to raise the standard of comics. It's one of the reasons why he brought in Marsden in the first place. He quit comics in, in one of the heights of their popularity. He, he sold out his shares of All-American because he wanted to start another kind of comic company, which he called Education Comics, uh, which was shortened to EC. And he published books like, I think one of them was called Pictorial Stories from the Bible. So uh, he did a lot of stuff that was like, again, had educational value, historical stuff, fairly dry material that didn't catch on with the kids. It was exactly the kind of comics that kids didn't want. It's funny because you look at Wonder Woman, which is this fairly saucy book with all these very, you know, adult themes running through it. And of course, this radical political agenda that's very much on the surface of the book. Wonder Woman is constantly taught, espousing the superior order of women and, and somewhat communistic ideals too about everybody working together to a greater goal and such. And that went over not only with adults, but with their children as well. Children love it. And all that stuff that was above their heads stayed above their heads because there was enough in the stories to engage their attention and make them fans. And in particular, Sheldon Meyer had said that it was an open secret that Wonder Woman was never created for women, that Wonder Woman was created for boys, that the intention of Marsden was to change the minds of boys to understand that women could be their equals or superiors and that they had rights to be a part of the patriarchal world and that he was trying to mold their minds. What's interesting to me about the certainty with which Mayers makes that statement is that a guy who was as cunning as Marsden could very easily have sold that idea to Mayer so that Mayer would be comfortable with the kind of comics they were producing while simultaneously having a, a whole other agenda that he wasn't revealing. The fact that you have comic creators like Trina Robbins and major political figures like Gloria Steinem read those same stories and feel empowered and, and basically glaze over at the sexual stuff and only see this capable woman who's having these incredible adventures and espousing all these uh, beliefs about sisterhood and that's what they take from it tells me that Marsden was definitely playing to a broader audience than just boys. But if that's what he had to tell Mayer and Gaines to sell them on the idea of Wonder Woman, it sure worked out well. A Wonder Woman was a gangbuster success. Marsden at one point claimed that she was selling in the neighborhood of 2.5 million copies a circulation a month. Of course, there was somewhat dubious math there because he was he was factoring in the Sensation Comics series, the quarterly Wonder Woman book. I think he might even try to throw in All-Star Comics when it featured Wonder Woman or Comics Cavalcade, which only had a Wonder Woman feature in it. But regardless, Wonder Woman was the number one book that All-American ever published, below only the upper echelon of superhero characters like Captain Marvel, Superman, Batman. She was one of the only comic book characters of the time to make the leap to news- newspaper strips, which was the goal of all comic book creators. Comic books was always a stepping stone to get into newspaper strips. If you could get into newspaper strips, that's where the real action was. And even though her strip wasn't a success, in part because the Superman strip and the space that it took up kind of helped to suppress the woman's strip, um, the fact that she was even in, in contention, the fact that she even had a strip at one point shows how incredibly successful that character was. You know, they have that moment in the movie where Marston is trying to sell the concept of a female hero and the Max Gaines character is portrayed in the movie is like, ah, women are flops, women don't sell. There hadn't been enough women produced in comics to, for him to have that sort of dismissive attitude. And in fact, there had been some reasonable successes with comics up to that point. Um, so there was no reason to make that statement. It was just an invention for the movie. Well, I think for me, just to put it out there and, and the reason why I just go into this, pretty much that entire part of the movie to me was just like 
It's just like when you were saying about the whole uh, when they go into that shop with the rope and all that. It was already like okay, okay, come on, let's move on and stuff like that. So to me, it was less interesting than obviously it is to you because to me, we're just like okay, I don't know anything in the story about this. I don't know what is you know what is the actual comic creation relationship between the editor and this person. So I did not took it as such. Uh, so just to put it out there, uh, I'm not gonna have too much to comment on that sense because I pretty much I kind of like start going into La La Land into when they start going into that that, yeah. that detail and that's a big problem for me because you never at one at any point hear mention of Harry G. Peter who was the artist handpicked by Marsden to produce the script who again as, as very much a different kind of creator than what was normal in the field this is a guy who'd been doing like editorial strips and since like the, the, the turn of the century you know he was working back in like 1908 on magazines like I think the New Yorker and stuff doing like editorial cartoons and stuff but there's something about his style that Moulton Marston liked and brought into you know brought him into comics because he, he didn't work on comics before uh, neither Marsden nor Peter ever worked or anything besides Wonder Woman's strip it looked completely different than anything else out there young guys like the editor Sheldon Meyer was like why are you bringing in this old guy his stuff looks almost grotesque it's so weird but basically Meyer helped to steer Peter towards a style that he felt was more accessible and acceptable to the, the modern audience but he this was an old guy. This guy was in his 60s when he started on Wonder Woman. You know, William Moulton Marston is an older guy. And what ended up happening is not only did Sheldon Meyer steer the, the strip and 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 have a, a decent hand in guiding this neophyte in William Moulton Marston who didn't know how to write comic books. He wrote stories that were adapted into comic books in part by Mayer and by Harry G. Peter. But both Peter and Meyer became family friends. They came over. They hung out with the kids. Uh, one of the daughters, Olive, he uh, Meyer would just like sit on a stool and just let him watch him draw the comic books for hours at a time and she was just fascinated watching him create Meyer was always going in like telling dirty jokes to the boys and playing piano and after William Moulton Marston died he lived down the street from them the kids were always over at his house and hanging out with him he was he was part of the family for the rest of their lives basically or at least the rest of their childhoods and I think that's and it, the movie goes to great pains to show how everybody rejected the Marsdens and this terrible secret they had and all these personal traumas that they were having and they split up the family and all this stuff and it, it was utterly bogus it, it's such a kind of a pathetic attempt at drama and no, but this that's that's the thing it's just like they have to have drama right so they have to have that uh i guess taboo and and saying that it was not socially uh socially acceptable that maybe that's why they didn't reveal it to the whole society on how it was a possible romantic trio and stuff because you know m- maybe it was just a movie to portray that but that's just it this manufactured drama <sighs> I understand the cliches demand that that be present. Part of what I loved about the first hour of the movie was it's all about the courtship of these three people and how they all come together and how there are elements that are familiar from older movies and and classic movies and classic romantic tropes, but it goes about it in a somewhat different way. And for a movie that you're expecting to perhaps be very, uh, perhaps lewd, kinky, you know, naughty, it's actually very sweet, you know, very like warm and inviting. It's not trade in any way I mean there's obviously it's some reservations Yeah, it's not a dark movie though it's a movie where these people are, are recognizing they're doing something that goes against conventions of the time but there's a mutual attraction there's a desire to explore this these are people that are adventuresome people and they have the feelings that they have and they don't want to deny it anymore and they, they consummate this relationship in a, in a bit of an orgy on the college campus involving costumes from like some Roman production <laughs> and stuff which is a little ridiculous a little over the top but well, no, given the subject I mean, matter Roman costumes and it is one of things when Olive goes 
walking into the hallway and 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 I started looking at this play and it's like the Amazons or it's like right. the the Greeks. So it's kind of like telling you in your face, oh look, this is kind of like a Wonder Woman and in, in the in the like on the island. This is yeah. what 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 it was on the island. So when they were having sex for the first time and they start uh, dressing up, playing dressing up. Oh, wait, no, that was after in the movie, right? When uh, um, when William was dressed as a captain, kind of. Yeah, that was that was later on. That was after they'd gone to the fetish club, but um, but no, still, but, but it yeah. still it shows a, a, a very overt way of of showing the influence influence of Wonder Woman. Even though it's yeah. funny because at no point in the movie did they ever mention that Marsden was a a, a aficionado of mythology and and that he there was a lifelong love that he had and that's what informed the creation of Wonder Woman, not a, an orgy during a college play. <laughs> and also, I, I'm sorry, I, I have trouble believing even in the 1920s that just because you were a teacher at a university that you would have free reign over the entire campus and could just crash, you know, this this play and play with all the props and do all this fornication in the midst of all that oh, stuff. Oh, it was during the night, so, yeah, maybe, so Maybe they're all gone. I, I, I get that the movie perhaps needed to show that consummation of the relationship, um, and, and, but I don't know that it was necessary to the story that was being told. But I, I loved how normal the relationship is, how there isn't anything really weird or dark or anything about how they're connecting to one another and most movies would have gone there and this movie didn't and I congratulate it for that and then in the second hour it feels the need to manufacture all this drama that I don't think was to the benefit of the movie and in part what it, a lot of it is that there's a framing sequence involving the character of Josette Frank played by Connie Britton who I thought did a great job with it and basically she is involved with the Children's Study Association of America and she is pushing for restrictions on comic books uh, it's portrayed as though her decision could spell the end of the Wonder Woman comic book and ruin the career and the family fortunes of the Marsdens and her interrogation of William Moulton Marsden is is what frames the entire movie and in fact toward the end of the movie it's after he's been confronted with his dual life you know with the, the relationship that he has that's frowned upon by society with his having seen his comic books being burned in mass book burnings as America has turned against the medium of comic books and then he collapses in the stairwell afterwards and he's coughing blood into his napkin and, and all this stuff and he ends up going to the hospital as a result and that's the, the sign of his decline is, is inevitable death and totally bogus like <laughs> totally nothing remotely correct about any of that Josette Frank worked for the company he, she worked for what became National Periodical Publication she was on one of the same review boards as Marsden had been on she had never liked the idea of Wonder Woman she had constantly criticized it she had constantly tried to shut it down and she was constantly ignored she still went after the pro- book after it became a success and so they basically introduced a intermediary named Dorothy Ruby Rubisek who is never mentioned in the movie she offered some suggestions and basically helped to you know uh, uh, act as a middle person to diffuse the tension between Marsden and Frank Frank is actually a, a pretty res- well respected person she uh, an award for children's literature was created in her name uh, I look at the award recipients over the years and none of the books seem particularly interesting or controversial so I get the sense that she might have been a little bit of boring white bread type person but I can't say that for certain without doing more research but she had no great power and uh, Rubisek actually went out and found some outside opinions on the character of Wonder Woman including Dr. Loretta Bender of Bellevue Hospital Professor WWD Sones and they basically reviewed the Wonder Woman book and said look there's obviously some kinky stuff going on here but we don't necessarily see that it's harmful and in in, in particular 
uh, the Dr. Bender thought that maybe it was Frank that was the one who had some problems and some hangups of her own. So ultimately, all that came of that was Josette Frank's name was taken off of Wonder Woman as an advisor as part of that board. And that's all that ever came of that. As far as the book burnings go, that didn't happen until long after Marsden was dead. That happened as, as part of the, the overall panic against youth and juvenile delinquency that came out of the 1950s. And how one particular fellow, Dr. Frederick Wortham, had stirred up all these anti-comics sentiment. And that's when they were burning the comics. Marsden was years in the grave before that, any of that happened. There's one particular shot that Angela Robinson talks people through in an article on the internet. And it's the scene where one of their neighbors, who had been friendly with the Marsdens, goes into their house with some Tupperware and is looking for them, can't find them, makes her way through the house, opens the door, and finds all three of them, you know, in a compromising position involving some rope. And what she talks about is how so much of the mother, the rest of the movie is so warmly lit, like there's a lot of autumnal colors and stuff, and it's a very inviting. And then that one particular scene, as a woman's going through the house, everything's kind of a dingy shade of blue. Uh, it's all being shown from the subjective perspective of the woman as she's walking through the house. When she sees the characters, she obviously has a jaundiced view of the activities. And then that leads into the scene with a confrontation between her husband and, and some other people in the neighborhood who wants to push the Marsdens out of the neighborhood. Uh, their sons are beating up the sons of the Marsdens because they don't approve the lifestyle and all this kind of stuff. And Robinson talks about how she specifically chose those colors, that soundtrack, to show that this was the woman's point of view. This was this moment of condemnation and all the times that she shows that she's the, those moments when the movie gets cold and gets grim it's because it's being shown from the perspective of the people that are against the Marsdens and against a more uh, enlightened accepting viewpoint of the world and I have to commend Robinson I think she did a very good job with that but at the same time it's invented drama and I, I think that showing how this family works and being showing a more ref, uh, a, adult mature look at the family dynamics and involving the family in this would have probably been a better way and made for a better movie I really enjoyed the first half of the movie and then the second half with all this manufactured drama and it's obvious historical inaccuracy turned me off to that part of the movie um, I, I would have been more interested I don't. I know they didn't have to get into all the nuts and bolts of the comics but they didn't have to obviously and unnecessarily have all this false information put forth it, it, it took me out of the movie and I don't think that it benefited the movie and I especially had a major problem with the scene in which after the uh, the three way relationship is revealed to the neighbors Elizabeth pushes Olive out of the relationship and forces her to try to form another life for some indeterminate period of time forces the kids to come and visit and separates them and everything else a major problem I had with the movie is that Elizabeth while she is the central figure of the movie she's the the, the movie does a good job of bouncing between the perspectives of all three of the major characters but I do think that the strongest character is clearly Elizabeth and she's the most abusive character in the movie she's the one who is constantly uh, denying her own desires and pushing out Olive and condemning the family and breaking up the family well, and causing so much problems and it demonizes the character of Elizabeth and I don't feel that any of that was necessary and I think it hurts the, the one of the things that's great about the Wonder Woman comic strip as presented by William Moulton Marston is he had a very specific agenda he had very strong beliefs and the strip does not sway from those it, 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 it's, it, it's a bullet projectory he's just constantly telling you what he wants you to believe and what he wants the strip to be about it's very clear it's a straight line right and then the movie is seems like it's at war itself because in the early parts of the movie even though there's definitely people that have problems with relationship and there's a struggle to get to a point where they were comfortable enough to have the relationship between the three of them. Once the, the, you consummate the relationship, I just want to see them be happy for the rest of the time and I want to see them be successful from that point onward. And with all the manufactured drama, it took me out of the movie, it bored me. I didn't feel like it was necessary and I would have been happy given how sex positive, how uh, non-judgmental the movie was in that first hour. I didn't need that turn in the second hour. I've seen that kind of story enough times. I didn't feel like it, uh, it was an effective drama. I felt like it was very cliched. And one problem I did have is we've got this issue with appropriation 
creation these days where for so long white straight men determined what stories were going to be told. They control the narrative of media and the narrative of our culture. And in recent years, there's been a big push for, toward letting women tell their own stories, let people of color tell their own stories, let uh, uh, gay people tell their own stories and so on and so forth. And what's weird about this movie is that I feel like at some point, Angela Robinson is appropriating a straight family to tell her story, a, a lesbian story. And I feel like a lot of the drama that's in the second half and all the conflicts, it's her pushing a more modern mindset and more modern belief system onto a movie that's a period piece where I think it would have worked better. Everybody just keeps it down the download. They're very particular about who knows what kind of relationships they're having. They only bring in people that would be willing and accepting of them. They effectively combat people they would have problems with that. I wish they'd just been more positive for the entirety of the movie and maintain the positive that you saw in the early part of the movie and not try to create this drama that I didn't feel fit the story that was being told. Probably because of commercial concerns, probably because of second guessing, but possibly because of Robinson trying to create drama in the same way that she did with a lot of her soap opera stuff that she'd done previously. I think the direction of this movie is very good. I think the acting in this movie is very good. I did not have as much problems with the how oppressive the score is. There's a, the, the soundtrack of the movie is really in your face a lot of the time. And I saw that, but I kind of forgave it that because Marsden was a creator whose works were turned up to 11. And a lot of this movie is that way as well. So I, I kind of forgave that. The one thing I couldn't forgive was this: the writing was not great for a lot of the movie. And a lot of that is covered over by how good the direction and the acting is. But in the second half of the movie, the, the bad writing comes to the fore in a way that turned me off to, a, you know, for the entire, most of the second hour of the movie. Well, no. I mean, I, I kind of disagree with that because, okay, so I, I was going to interrupt earlier about you saying on how Elizabeth was portrayed, like, kind of like not the villain, but kind of be more of uh, the turned down. Conflicted too. Conflicted too, but I kind of dis- disagree with that because Elizabeth, she knows what is, how hard it is to fight for something and try very, very hard and be turned down because she is a woman. You know, having the, the same education as the husband and the husband be, be, being able to get a PhD. Her, she's trying, she's trying to get a PhD. They're, they're not letting her. She's trying to be kind of like the, the center of the house, the back, the backbone of the house, kind of like the more centric, kind of what it will make more sense to how to act, how to behave. So kind of like the brains of the operations. And sometimes you have that in a family type of situation where it's like when I was younger, you know, I was younger drinking with friends, being like a regular teenager. I finished school. I moved outside my home and I became part of the workforce, you know, in a respectable job, but, you know, getting money and having my own place to live. Now I have to pay bills. Now I have to be responsible. I have to wake up early so I can go to work. And so when my friends came came over or when I started hanging out with my friends, it was this constant like, yeah, let's go party. And my brain changed. My brain changed to, yes, let's go party to, no, I can't because I need to get up early or no, I'm not driving what I'm drinking because I might get into an accident for which I'm going to have problems with the law and they're not able to get to work and then I'm going to get fired and I'm going to have a job and then I'm going to, I'm not going to have an apartment and you know, all this situation. So it's not that she was a party pooper. It's not about this conflict. Oh, you get out of my house, Olive, because the neighbors are pressuring me. But but she's more like a, the the responsible person. It's more like sometimes it kind of hurts when 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 think about what what society is gonna think of you. And it's not about what other people think of you. It's how you kind of maintain this stability in your life. You know, you get into a point in your life that 
that it's not gonna be like I don't care what the world thinks I don't care about anything I'm just gonna have a good life and party no that totally stops you know it's like you have you have no idea how many times I am at work and I want to say what I want to say but I can because guess what it's my work and I depend on that work because that's what is keeping us fed well not keeping us because you work as well but it's just that responsibility and um, that's that's the way I see Elizabeth because you have Olive being the housewife in the movie now you have you already established that in the actual life she did work and, and, and all the stuff but in the movie she was portrayed as the housewife so she doesn't have any other responsibility and she doesn't have any other care but to put the kids to bed make make sure that that the kids do homework and do dinner uh William guy is supposedly going back and back in different jobs and stuff like that as you already mentioned there's different from the actual life but in the movie it was portraying like he was not a, a breadwinner of the house the breadwinner was Elizabeth so in her in her mind it puts this responsibility she cannot just flow you know go with the flow or 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 just say like oh who cares let's do whatever we we want no now she has to, to think about my acts create consequences and the consequences is just not me the consequences will affect the kids the four kids that I love that I don't want them hurt uh, Olive that I love and I don't want her hurt and William so she is carrying all this burden I mean it's not burden to to have a family but she's carrying all the weight so by her being portrayed as the party pooper the conflict one is not I think she's more as I have to keep my head straight and I have to do what's best for the family even though that means sacrifice for myself but but that's just it you've, you've basically attacked your own argument as the breadwinner as the pragmatic one as the, the matriarch of the family the family is four children and two significant others she named her only daughter after all all four of those children have been living in the same household to, that she to a large degree was supporting see no so okay, how, how it, dare she no, hold no, 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 on no, no, no. how dare she throw out the mother of two of the children that she's helping to raise the woman who's raising all four of the children while she's out breadwinning that's a ridiculous situation to create there would be much no, easier I do, she, I she, do she agree works on for that. a company hold on, hold on. Yeah. I do uh, agree on that and that part of the movie where she actually throw all of away I thought it was gonna be more of you know what I am leaving but then in that situation it's like oh wait if she's leaving now who's nobody who's can gonna... leave that's the point these people committed to a relationship they committed to a dynamic they've raised the family in this dynamic it is a deeply immature mindset to think that you can just push a member three members of the family out based on you know uh, uh, one problem you can't once you're in that situation you can't break that situation up without being the bad guy without being the villain I agree you can't do I that. agree especially if you're the breadwinner especially if you're supporting everybody if Olive has sacrificed her life to raise your children you can't be like well you've got to go and that's a point where Robinson is writing something that you could do in 2017 that you could not do in 1945 you, you cannot create that situation because it, it's too precarious everybody is too interdependent with one another you, you've got to factor it. those are her children too and she's going to send two of her children off to live at some bizarre circumstance and it's not reflected and in that, reality and that's that not sense, something that happened that sense I do uh, agree but just only on that scene you did mention multiple parts of the movie where she 
she's the conflicted one. In that part, I do agree that that what what she did was wrong. In my mind, the best the best situation is that the guy leaves. That for me would be the best. <laughs> that would actually make the most sense. That would end. That you know that would have made the most sense. Honestly, you're right. Is you could throw the guy out. And because and, and, but, we, but because they threw the girl out, I realized what Robinson's doing. She's trying to test the relationship between the two women, trying to let, test that aspect of it because the conflicted relationship is between the two women in Robinson's mind. But I don't think that's appropriate to our times. I don't think it was appropriate to the story. It's not a reflection of the history and it demonizes Elizabeth in a way that I just think is harmful to the movie's narrative. Uh, and a, a movie that's being so positive about these different lifestyles to throw that well, under the but, bus but, and to throw Elizabeth then, under the bus, I, I, I found that very distasteful. But then we have the same situation with Olive. I mean, you just tell me that in real life she did all this work too that, that she was very capable woman. In the movie they just portray her like a very typical submissive woman that stay at home and that to me it was like the the least interesting character and the one that kind of pissed me off the most because it's the woman who is accepting the situation that is accepting leftovers that is accepting to be you know uh, held by these two wonderful people with master's degrees and PhDs and smart people so they for the entire movie they portray Olive as a yes I'll do whatever you want master oh yeah yeah and until the very very end of the movie they kind of like well I'll come back if you guys do this and you guys do that yeah, and, and, and then have a, homemaker and stuff. then you yeah. have Elizabeth kneeling and being like oh please come back you know but it wasn't until the very end I mean that scene kind of bugged me because yeah like like you like you say they come back with, with, with the same thing coming back to be this submissive woman and that's for me that character was most insulting than Elizabeth yeah on that scene when she kicks Olive out I got a little bit what you know like you just kick the guy out instead but you know but yeah, the rest of the stuff yeah. it was good but for me the most offensive was Olive but now I have to put myself in a situation of the 1940s and the 1930s on the 1920s for which to me the movie throughout uh, and I do uh, agree with you that, that the movie throughout it, it didn't fail like the 20s 30s or 40s the only thing that felt like the 20s 30s and 40s was the how they were dressing mm. and that was it the way they talk the what the the way they behave it was like a 21st century and that's one of the things that you have to realize sometimes you can say well you don't know how that woman behave it's not different from the woman now from the woman back then and I kind of disagree on that because unfortunately women behave and men as well behave based on on where they are demographically in the time period and and that's if you go to all the parts of the country that that that, that they don't have the western culture i mean you can see differences in women i mean in terms of my mom you know as i mentioned before uh i grew up with not a father figure but it was my my mom raising three three kids but at the same time i see her being a regular you know person being from the 60s you know being like a, a 20s or so in 1960s and being in Mexico and just the way she behaved and sometimes to me uh, when when she says something that I don't agree on because I'm a very strong female and I kind of get angry at my mom for thinking about those situations but th- but then I have to step back and say she was in a different time frame she's she was educated differently than I am right now I mean I gained my total independence when I was 22 years old that's saying like absolute total I don't depend on nobody independence uh, so for her it was like she 
got married, you know, she was totally on the family and then got married and then it got problems. Like all the situations. So the life situations are different. That's what we think of differently. So the way I see it in the movie is that everything in the movie didn't feel like the 20s, 30s and 40s. It felt like somebody from the 21st century just going into a costume party. Mm -hmm. And that's what I didn't like about the movie. It was sloppy, lazy, inaccurate and willfully ignorant writing. And in in service, it, it diminishes Elizabeth, it diminishes Olive to create a conflict that's unnecessary and damaging to the characters and to the story. I take great exception to that. I really have a lot of problems with the second hour of the movie. I put the blame squarely on Angela Robinson. The same way that if you're going to write about a black character, uh, a Muslim character, anybody who's not you, it's a big push now. You gotta if you're if you're not that and you want to write about that, you immediately pass it by somebody who is. And I feel like Robinson wrote to her own experiences and her own interests, and she never passed this thing around to somebody else. Check and she cast well, she directed well. I don't think she writes as well as she would need to to pull off this work. Especially, and, and I'm sorry, but looking at her IMDb, the stuff that she's written, the stuff that I've seen her do, she needed to let another writer pick, take a pass at this, and she needed to have a writer who's had a different experience from her take a pass at that. So if there's one area where I'm I'm very willing to strongly criticize this uh, talent on, it's it's in the writing, particularly in that second half. Yeah, the first half to me was interesting. It was entertaining. I, I wasn't never fully engaged in the movie. I mean, engaged in a fact like, oh my God, I'm having a, such a good time of the movie. There are some of the parts that I was kind of bored and kind of out of it and start thinking about work, thinking about something else. But they actually lost me when they start talking about the going into the publishing of the comics and the whole family dynamic of it. That kind of lose me. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say that I really enjoyed the, the movie. I thought it was interesting in effect on, on, on how they played the first part of it with the whole love triangle, like that that tension between the all three of them. But then on the second half, I do totally agree with you that it was kind of boring to me, especially when they go into the more historical part about Wonder Woman that I don't know. I don't know how to criticize because I don't know the history as, as you do. So to me, it was just not that interesting. A couple of things I wanted to touch on that we didn't quite get around to. One argument that Marsden made was that all the bondage that you see in the comic isn't necessarily about a, a sexual connotation, but was in fact an alternative to fisticuffs. Instead of people fighting and, and having this, this violent physical confrontations, he would have people get bound up. And I think that's almost reasonable. You know, I mean, I'm not saying, I think that it's it's too dominant and I do think that it's uh, too much of a part of the appeal of the strip to a lot of people, particularly the GIs. But I do think that there is a valid argument to be made that, you know, all the bondage in those comics as an alternative to the, the violent confrontations in the, the boys' comics, you know, that, that is a, a viable alternative. And and it's still exciting. It's exciting probably different parts of the brain and the body that the other uh, violence well, would let me ask violence you this. Would, uh, in, uh, in most In most of the comics of Wonder Woman, when she's tied up, is she releases herself all the time so there was somebody saving her? Uh, sometimes she released herself, but oftentimes it was her female friends that would be saving her. See, and that's, like at a candy, the holiday girls and the like. And that's kind of like goes into the what we were watching the documentary that you mentioned earlier that we're gonna go on but he was talking about how uh, women they're always portrayed like in peril and they need to be saved and they show several images of uh, women being tied up on the uh, rail tracks or being tied up and trying to be safe or jump into the window and, and be saved so in this case the way I see it and now this is just kind of like right at the bat but the way I see it one the woman being tied up and she releases herself or an, another female helping her and not a man is kind of like oh look I'm in this 
stress. I am tied up. Oh, wait, I can do it myself. I don't need no effing men, you know, to uh, help me. So that's the way I see it. Now, I don't know too much in depth of the actual comics and, and because I haven't read at that time on the bondage thing, but that's how I see it right now. When you're asking about the influence of women on the writing of the book, uh, uh, some things I wanted to point out was that a lot of the artwork was actually generated by women. That, you know, H.G. Uh, Peter was an older gentleman uh, and there was an enormous amount of work in creating all those women's stories, especially at the height of her fame. So uh, later as the script progressed, Peter would mostly just draw the figures, especially the Wonder Woman figures, and he had a team of assistants, mostly young, attractive women, <laughs> uh, so, you know, probably a side benefit there, who were doing the rest of the artwork. Uh, also, what's worth noting is that Marsden, when he got sick in his last years of his life, he actually developed adult polio. And so when you see him walking off in the movie, he was in a wheelchair by that point in his lifetime, so he wasn't walking anywhere, and he ultimately died of lung cancer. But because it was a slow, progressive descent until his inevitable death, they point out that he was a workhorse, that he was committed to the project, that he was working right up to the end, but he did need help. And toward the end, a, he hired Joy Murchison, who was another very educated, very accomplished woman, to be his secretary and co-writer. She basically either finished his scripts or did complete scripts of her own to make sure that the, the book was produced, and she was the one who actually bothered with all the typing and stuff. He would, like, dictate to her, and he she would, like, help to get the book produced since he was so heavy into the production of the book, and, you know, as far as delineating exactly what was going to happen. So she was a big part of the book at the end. I uh, wonder how Elizabeth and Olive felt about that. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> well, at that point, he was probably pretty close to an invalid, so it, it, I don't think that, that they there wasn't a purient interest in having this additional woman in the... No, 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 picture. no. I'm not talking about sexual stuff. I'm just talking about... Uh, so you have this two women very capable of helping him, of I don't, very, I don't, very smart, and then he has the need to get somebody else outside their circle, outside of what never helped to do something that they can be able to do. It is kind of like, yeah, I don't trust you guys. I'm just gonna go with this third you know I don't think that's fair because Elizabeth was still working the entire time she she held her job so she she was you know full time worker and Olive was raising the kid you know so she was she was keeping up the household so she wouldn't have had time to spend all this time working on the Wonder Woman strip as well so I I think that there was a legitimate need there one thing that Wonder Woman did that a lot of other superhero strips couldn't do was after the war toward the end of the war too a lot of comic book superheroes bit the dust because there was increased lack of interest in superhero stories. Uh, Marsden was able to transition out of the war years by having a more fantasy-oriented storytelling, and the book just had a a more inherent appeal and a more distinctive flavor than most superhero comics. So where most of the superhero strips were getting cancelled around 1948 or so, uh, Wonder Woman continued on indefinitely. She was one of the very few characters that survived uninterrupted publication throughout even the the, the worst periods of the comic book industry, and was still quite successful, as a matter of fact. She was very successful right up until the end of his life. And that was actually one of the major problems was that once he died, and both Sheldon Mayer and H.G. Peter both commented on that, the worst thing he ever did was on them was die. Because nobody could produce Wonder Woman stories like he could. Sheldon Mayer tried for a short period of time. He knew that he couldn't. And he was tired of being an editor anyway. He quit and started working on his own comic strips. And then Harry Peter continued to work on the book, I think until his death, or at least until his retirement. And they just couldn't recapture the magic that Marsden had brought to the feature. It, the success was so hinged on Marsden that it just couldn't keep up with that and became like kind of a dog for years and years because they just couldn't maintain. I think it's worth noting that the final story that Marsden did and 
and uh, Les Daniels in his book very beautifully illustrated this. There, there's a, you'd like to think about writers and creative people on their deathbed being surrounded by the creations. And to some extent, Marsden did that himself because his last story was Villainy Incorporated in 1948, which was basically all of Wonder Woman's villains all coming together for one great big final story, which is considered one of the better stories ever created in the Golden Age. Uh, it's the one that's been off reprinted. And uh, in fact, as the, the podcast progressed, I'm going to try to cover each one of the villains in that. And now that we're outside of the 75th anniversary of Wonder Woman, I'd like to spend the 76th focusing more on her villains and showing where they came from. So kind of a nice send-off there. To add some validity to the belief that uh, Olive and Elizabeth had a relationship together, Al- Al- Elizabeth is a noted for her love of sapphic poetry. And Sappho was, of course, uh, uh, known for her, her lesbian writings. Uh, finally, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the cast. What did you think about the cast on this movie? Well, to be very honest with you, and you know me for a very long time now, I am horrible with remembering names uh, on actors, actresses, producers, directors. So I don't remember ever seeing any of those characters in, an, in another movies. And if I have, I don't remember. I will say this. I love the character of Elizabeth. I think that the actress did a very good job. She was very, very appealing. Beautiful girl. Very strong. She actually portrayed like the strong that the character required. I will say that Rebecca Hall has been threatening to be across from me for a long time. And this movie kind of sealed the deal. <laughs> I-, I loved her. I loved looking at her. I thought she was so beautiful. I-, I thought the character she portrayed was so appealing. Somebody I would totally be into. Given her accomplishments and her strength, there are definitely parallels to you as well. She did a really good job on her character. Excellent. Yeah, she really sold the I just kind of like forget her about anything else she did. And that's and that's what I think about movies and me. Unless it is like a very famous actor or actress that I can recognize. For But for the most part, I just don't see him as an actor, as an actress. I see it as the actual character portrayed in the in the movie itself. So that will kind of bring me in, into the movie and not just think that it's a Hollywood or a other studio creation. So that's why I'm kind of like I'm very bad with actors. Uh, so I love Elizabeth. I thought she was great. I had the problems with Olive. Uh, Olive to me, but but maybe it wasn't too much of the actress type of problem. I think it was more like her portrayal of a woman, a submissive woman and something that, you know, is for me. It's like, come on, you have to do better than that. You know, don't just be like that. Don't fight and scream and, and, and that. So I think she, in that way, I think she did a good job because I actually, if she was trying to portray the submissive character, she did a good job because I dislike her. Uh, so maybe she did a good job, but if she didn't try to portray that type of character, then it's like, ah, you did it the, the wrong way. The guy... Oh, for you. So you're talking about Bella Heathcote, who is an Australian actress. Ironically, the other thing that you would know her from was the last time that we went to a movie that absolutely nobody else was in the theater but you and I, The Neon Demon. She was one of the mean girls in that movie, and she was actually the final oh, okay. girl in the movie, yeah. uh, which I thought she did a good job because of all the, the actresses in that movie, at the end of the movie, she was the one who was, I suppose, the most sympathetic. You, She's going through some stuff at the end of the movie that I don't think any of the other actresses would have been as able to portray because there is a... You have a sympathetic feel for, for her. She's got expressive eyes, and she she does have a presence where you, you, you feel bad for her, even though in the movie The Neon Demon, she's playing a pretty horrific character who does some very evil things, but you're still feeling for her by the end of it. I think she's a very beautiful woman, and I think that she did a good job portraying a character that was not especially well-written and not as especially well-rounded. I think that her presence gave that character more life than was on the page. Yeah. The guy, William, he pretty much was to me like the third wheel. There's sometimes it kind of bugged me because it acted so much like a, like a guy, like a macho, or just didn't 
can comprehend that, you know, feminist guy. You know, I live with a feminist guy that is you, Frank, and I know how feminist guys behave and, and I know how they react to different things. And this guy didn't insult me to that. This guy didn't He's a little me. smarmy. He couldn't, he couldn't yeah. help but seem like he was angling. He, like, he felt like those other feminists were just like, yeah, I'm a feminist because it's going to get me laid, you know? So, yeah. So he it, did go a little that. It yeah. felt that he was trying so hard to be a feminist on the script, but it didn't come to a believable characters once again is because I live with the feminists and I know how they behave I know how they react so to me I was like eh this guy didn't didn't care too much for him and he was always kind of like in the background the third wheel that I don't care about your story you're not that you're not that interesting uh, so yeah. yeah Luke Evans has been kicking around Hollywood for a while he was in one of the villain in one of the Fast and the Furious movies he was in Dracula Untold the first attempt at launching the universal dark universe of, of horror characters when that flopped they put out the mummy and now they're looking for a third reboot of that franchise i've never been super impressed with him I thought so he's like, he was mainly on macho movies yeah macho movies i think he's a he's a handsome guy he's well built he's good into action vehicles so i didn't expect a lot from him in this movie especially because he's such a stereotypically handsome you know lead actor guy playing a character that you know playing a playing a real life person that looked nothing like him so i was actually impressed by what he brought to the role because he had this sort of contained physical presence like he, he moved in a very deliberate way and he was able to convey like a sort of an age and a, and a, and a, a lack of a dexterity. You know, he was a guy who felt like he was some kind of like an academic who wasn't very capable. Uh, there's that sequence where he tries to get into a fight with one of the neighbors and gets his head handed to him. Um, and he spoke in a kind of an interesting, effective way because he's English, I believe. Um, sometimes if you're in a caricature, like there's a moment where he's talking to his son after that fight uh, where you felt like he was sort of like maybe taking it a little too far and kind of being cartoonish. But for most of the movie, I thought he did a good job of, of conveying a guy who seemed a little bit older and a little bit less capable than he would be in real life. So yeah, ultimately, the, ultimately, I like the performance. I, I thought he did a good job with it. the core of that is to portray a guy that is a feminist, that is creating something for the women, for that believes that women can be strong. And I never thought of that. I, I never believed that out of his acting. It, it, but I think part of it is in the script too. I, I think that a lot of... Uh, I, I felt like Robinson herself in the writing was sabotaging the character and minimizing the character's beliefs and certainly in bringing in a guy like who get Luke Evans, you know, he, he looks like, you know, kind of a chotch douche kind of dude. I, I thought that he did a, be- a really good job given what he had to work with and given how little he had in common with the actual character, person, human being that he was portraying. Uh, but, but I see where your point of view and yeah, he he doesn't, he doesn't get a, that, that element of cross. He doesn't get the cross the feminist zealot, the champion of ideals that Marsden was. He gets too much of the lurid, Hugh Hefner-y, quasi-feminist exploitation thing. But I, I thought he did a decent job with it. And I have to say, as much as I've been critical of the movie and its factual inaccuracies and its agendas I think that regardless of the truth or fiction I think that the movie itself is important I think it is entertaining I think that what I'm reminded of most is back when in my sex shop days a movie came out called Secretary it stars Maggie Gyllenhaal and James Spader and it's a movie about bondage a relationship about BDSM I was excited to see that movie particularly because I was a big fan of James Spader because I thought it was going to be cool and dark and edgy and so when I saw the movie it was too saccharine it was like too soft and sweet and too much of like a stereotypical American happy-go-lucky romantic comedy kind of thing. I thought it was like very like rounded off all the edges and stuff. So I was kind of not into it. But uh, in particular, at the so- shop I was working with, there was a-, a lesbian couple who was into BDSM. And there was also another woman who worked there that, that uh, was straight and she was into BDSM. And they all loved the movie dearly. And 
I was like, yeah, it's just okay. You know, it was, it was kind of wimpy. It was kind of weak. But I think they, they embraced it in part because it wasn't trying to show the dark, edgy side of, of BDSM. It was showing that it can be sweet and natural and, and it can be part of just like a normal loving relationship. And I think also about a few years later, I was working at a sales job and there was a, a black dude who was talking about the Tyler Perry movies. And I'd, of course, heard a lot of things disparaging about those movies. And I kind of asked him about it. I was like, you know, people kind of talk some trash about that. I mean, what do you think about that? And he's like, you got to understand, there really isn't a lot of movies out there for us that's made by us for us that speak to us in the same way that you're talking about how you can tell when a woman is writing and directing a movie versus a man writing a woman, you know, in the movie. And Secretary, and I think this movie as well, they're all speaking to a marginalized community, people who are not well served, who do not have a lot of media created for them. And so when they have a voice that speaks to them with verisimilitude, that speaks to them from the same place they're at, it resonates. And even if it may be not the most perfect, most ideal representation, the fact that it's even representing them at all and representing them in a positive light and representing them as something that wasn't othering them, I think that's important. And I do think that polyamorous relationships are the future. We've kind of played with that back in the 60s, all the free love and stuff, but I think that the demands of the patriarchy and the exploitation of all that free love stuff countered that. I think that a lot of the people that are coming up in modern times, to some degree millennials, but I think the generation that's coming after them more so, especially in the social media environment where there's so much more of a lax attitude and so much of a laissez-faire look at non-binary relationships, gay, straight, trans, poly, gender non-identifying. It's like people are just a lot more accepting and a lot less rigid about what kind of relationships you should have. And there's this sense of possessiveness that comes with one man, one woman, or one woman, one woman, one man, one man, that is very narrow-minded. I think that the future probably is people who come together that are compatible, and maybe it's two people, maybe it's three people, maybe they're gay, maybe they're straight, maybe they're bi, but it just doesn't matter as much anymore as long as they're loving and supportive of each other and they're able to sustain relations. And especially in times like, you know, us growing up in the Generation X, where we've watched the disintegration of the nuclear family and seen the fallacy of it and seen the abuses that come from that. I think that the people that are coming up after us need to see positive representations of polyamorous relationships. This is one of the first and a very rare example of a movie that's absolutely in favor of it, absolutely loving towards that perspective and supportive of it and shows that it can work and that it can lead to long-term success of a stable, happy family. I also recall that Sheldon Meyer in particular kept talking about how he would go to the Marsden family and in real life and see how well-adjusted and happy and healthy they all were and how supportive they were of each other. If anything, he commended them for being a superior family to other families of the time. So regardless of how truthful it is, I think this is an important movie. I think it's going to mean a lot to people. It's unfortunate that it's such a box office disaster. The thing made less than a million dollars in its opening weekend. It made less than in humans. But I think that it's going to find life on cable. I think that it will probably find converts too. I think that the movie may end up having the sort of impact that a lot of early pioneers of different lifestyles embrace certain movies and uh, recall them fondly. I think that it is very well directed. I think that it's very well acted. I think that the chemistry of the actors and the overarching story that they're telling is more important than the nuts and bolts and the individual aspects of it. And I, I love that in a year, as much as I like the Wonder Woman movie, it was so yeah, safe and sterilized. And I think a lot of the kookiness and the nonconformity uh, uh, that was inherent in the work of Marsden was excised from the Wonder Woman core movie. And so I'm grateful that this movie exists to, to kind of encompass all of those, you know, radical ideals and all of that fun, unusual life paths. Only and, the first part. But more in the first hour. The first hour, I was thoroughly enjoying it. It was in the second hour that it lost me. But I think overall, it's a good movie. I do think that people should see it. And I do think that it'll be important going forward. Yeah. I'll say I like it, but I wasn't like crazy about it. But I will give it a 6.5. 
Given how long this episode already is, I will not be reading comments this time. We'll knock that out next time. But thanks go out to the 108 Sage, Ali Bats, Dr. Ange, Ascani Sun, Bill Bear, Blue Girl, Brett Brock, Brody's Kitchen, Chris Sheehan, Comic Book Vault, Comic Reflections, Debash, Derek William Crabb, Dimitri Pimanov, Dr. G, the Man of Nerdology, Don Leibold, Ed Moore at Indie Comics Fan, Marvel Bronze Age, Miss Katonic, Teal Productions, and Urban Fantasist, Fan Holes Podcast, Felipe Alves de O, Glenn Hinutu Hill, Gord Tolton, Grant Richter, I'm the Gun, Jeffrey Brown, Jim Canada Daredevil, Joe Crawford, John Mr. J, K, Keith G. Baker, Kenny Crayley Jr., Mark Danvers, Michelle Fife, Min, Paul Hicks, Paul K. Bisson, Pietro Blacksmoff, Punch Like a Girl Podcast, Robert Speculum Fight, Rad Adventures Podcasting Network, Randy Caldwell, Resurrections and Adam Warlock and Thanos Podcast, Sarah Russell, Satin Tights Podcast, Sean Phillips, Terrence Castanguay, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, Wild Dog Podcast, Will Fish, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace podcast and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Wonder Woman is the copyright of DC Comics Entertainment. This is a non-profit fan-produced podcast. No infringement of any copyrights are intended. And where copyrighted material appears, it is believed protected under fair use. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to leave a comment on the Diana Prince is the new Wonder Woman blog, the Rolled Spine podcast blog. Write to me at emailofdiabolu at yahoo.com featuring two underscores. Or just hit me up on Twitter at commanderblanks or at Rolled Spine. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.